The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. It is Saturday evening, and I am here to talk with all of you. No place that I would rather be on Saturday night than engaging with our lovely community here. So glad that you're here. Be sure that you hit the like button. Be sure that you hit the subscribe button. Be sure to hit the notifications bell um, so you can be notified every time we're going to do one of these. And we are going to have a Saturday evening chat, a good old-fashioned Caleb Moppin live stream Center for Political Innovation chat. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell if you can. Uh, And remember, the YouTube algorithms are a little bit weird. Sometimes they unsubscribe people. So just be sure that you're subscribed. Um, Be sure to give us a like. If you want to tweet this out, that would be great. Uh, Post this on Facebook. Post this on Reddit. Post this on Twitter. Post this on, what is it? Uh, Bunker Chan, Parlor, 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 right? Um, uh, Instagram, uh, post it on Instagreed, Instagram, post this on uh, wherever videos are posted. Uh, if you have a YouTube account of your own, you can push the share uh, button. You can you can post it. You can make it a post on your YouTube, YouTube timeline. If you have a YouTube account, wherever videos are posted, uh, be sure to post this video. That applies to not only all of you that are watching live, but all of you that were that are watching this later in the week. So glad that you're all here. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, now, the way this show works, for those of you who may be new, is I give my opening remarks uh, at the beginning of the show. Uh, then after that, um, from there, I do the roll call, and we find out who's watching. I call you out as I see you, names and locations. We find out who it is on the other side of the camera. And that is always an amazing experience. And then after that, after we do the roll call, uh, after that, then uh, at that point, I answer your super chat questions for the rest of the night. Uh, speaking of which, we just got our first super chat, which is long time no see. I've been dealing with a lot lately. Hopefully things are getting back to normal soon. Well, thank you. Thank you, Red Precarian, for that super chat. I don't think you really want me to answer that. I did just read it out. But but for those who have super chat questions, uh, just shoot me a super chat. I will write it down with the pen. And after I write it down with the pen uh, in the second half of the show, as soon as the roll call is completed, I will start answering those super chat questions. And we'll do that as long as it takes, as long as it takes. If we have to open up a new stream, we'll do that. If we have to, we have to keep being here, if we have to take a bathroom break or who, I don't care how long we have to go, I will answer your super chat questions tonight within reason. Obviously, there are some questions I can't answer um, but, you know, within reason, the general rule is that if you send me a super chat, I'll send you an answer. Recent Russian polls indicate strong support for socialism, right? Polls favoring socialism. And I'm, I'm sure you mean, you, you don't mean Polish people living in Russia. Polls in Russia favor socialism. You mean like data, right? You know, favoring socialism. You got to be clear, you know, you're in Eastern Europe. So there are polls. There are some polls in Russia. Um, but I don't know how those polls feel about socialism. 
Um, but I think you're referring to, you know, you know, data, like surveys of people, right? I just couldn't, I couldn't resist making the joke. But yes, polls in Russia favor socialism, polls as in data. Ha ha ha. That's my, my dad joke of the evening. I like puns, by the way. That's one of my, one of my weaknesses is that, um, most people hate puns. Most people don't find puns to be very funny, but I am one of those people. I'm one of those people that likes puns, but doesn't like dead baby jokes. I don't know if you know about dead baby jokes. That was like some kind of goth, teenage, gross, edgelord thing in the uh, the 90s. I never cared much for that. I was not a dead baby jokes kind of guy. Uh, I was a I was a, a pun kind of guy. That's That's how I always am. And so, you know, I'm all about the puns and I'm all about, um, I'm all about the puns, not so into the dead baby jokes. What is your favorite color? Favorite color. All right, writing it down. See, that's how it works. But anyway, um, uh, nice to see you back. Well, thank you, Herb. Thank you, Herb. I'm glad to be back. And uh, like I said, we're going to be doing a regular show and uh, hopefully I'll be back uh, doing these as much as I used to. Um, you know, we did we did one last week and we're going to hopefully keep doing them here. So um, be sure to hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. And away we go. Away we go. Folks, a lot of very serious things are happening in our world. A lot of very serious things are happening in our world. Um, I'm just going to give you kind of a lowdown. So um, there have been recently been two uh, school shootings uh, in the United States. One was this week in Michigan. Um, in Michigan, Oakland County, Michigan, there was a school shooting. Uh, four students died. Uh killed by one of their classmates, a 15-year-old boy showed up to class with a firearm that was purchased by his father and opened fire on his classmates. Um, and then most recently, there was the incident at Florida Tech. Now, it's technically not a, it's not a, a, a school for minors, it's a university, but I guess Florida Tech also had a shooting. Well, that's pretty intense, right? I mean, you know, last year, we had lockdown. Most kids were learning from home. But now uh, that once again, we're back in, you know, things are opening up. Once again, the shootings go on. I don't know if folks saw, but this week I was uh, on the scene at the United Nations when uh, this crazy uh, guy, uh, I, I shouldn't say crazy because we don't know his motivations, I guess, but, you know, we have a chance. Um, right. Um, right. Safe banned from. Libyan elections. Um, and um, anyhow, um, uh, you know, this guy was at the UN. I made I made a video. We were on the scene. Uh, this guy was at the UN headquarters, walking around, pacing in front of it with a with a pump action shotgun to his throat, and. Uh, so we were on the scene uh, on the ledge above uh, above the uh, the balcony facing First Avenue, right where the NYPD was with their sniper rifles. I was on the scene reporting on it. That was on Thursday. Um, in addition to that, uh, we saw uh, today we saw a a march of uh, of uh, white supremacists, uh, members of the. Patriot Front Organization, which is an organization of, of white white supremacists. I'm sure they call themselves white nationalists, but they're white supremacists. Uh, they marched through Washington, D.C. Uh, with their American flags and their faces covered up, and uh, that happened. Very disturbing. Um, other news, 
Kamala Harris uh, is having a little bit of a problem, our lovely vice president, who I've been warning you guys about for a long time. I've been on top of Kamala Harris. Uh, her staff is collapsing. Um, protests against coastal gas link pipeline. Pipeline. All right. Uh, Kamala Harris, her staff uh, are resigning. Uh, Simone Sanders, uh, who was a, a CNN commentator associated with Black Lives Matter, uh, she resigned from Kamala Harris's staff. And a number of former employees of Kamala Harris are coming forward and explaining that it's a toxic environment working in Kamala Harris's office. Hate to say I told you so. Uh, they're describing an atmosphere that's very scary. And one of the main reasons, apparently, that people on Kamala Harris's staff are resigning uh, is because they don't want to be considered to be a Harris person um, because Joe Biden's staff finds the Kamala Harris staff to be toxic and obnoxious to deal with. Many people in Washington cannot stand Kamala Harris's team. And uh, because if you work for Kamala Harris in Washington, D.C., um, you generally are considered to be somebody uh, who is then a Kamala Harris person and you are unpleasant to be around and you're unwanted. So people are quitting Kamala Harris's staff because they don't want to be associated with her. That's happening at this point. Um, well, I mean, I've warned you all about Kamala Harris. I've explained her personality in great depth. I've told you what motivates her. Um, oh, why did, um, all right. Astro, victory, and Honduras. Um, I've explained to you all um, what it means, and um, Kamala Harris is particularly toxic. And, uh, you know, she created an office uh, that is basically, uh, you know, it's, it's a synthetic left headquarters um, where uh, it's very unpleasant to work. I mean, read what people have said. And it's funny because a couple months ago, I received a private message from someone who views these streams who worked at a labor union that endorsed Kamala Harris. And they described to me the same thing. And this isn't even a place that she works. Um, this isn't even a place that she works. Um, you know, it's just a place, a union that endorsed her. Um, and they described how scary it is to work there and how everyone's kind of spying on everyone else. It's, it's the synthetic left in person, right? Uh, everyone's accusing everyone else of being racist, sexist, homophobic, or being disloyal. Uh, and it's, they create this atmosphere where people are constantly afraid, um, where people are constantly being accused of breaking some, some, you know, liberal, uh, you know, social justice rule where people are, you know, the way you advance in the workplace is by ratting out other people, um, where, you know, everyone's trying to kind of, you know, wreck everyone else. And if anyone is successful at what they do, they get accused. Uh, and, you know, someone someone reached out to me and described the environment at, uh, at, at, at this labor union that endorsed Kamala Harris. Um, and they, they just, person just described to me something that just sounded awful, just awful. And uh, apparently Kamala Harris's office is like that. Um, and, uh, you know, Kamala Harris at this point, uh, she's got a 28% approval rating. Um, you know, she's less popular than Biden is. Biden is quite unpopular, but she's less popular than he is. Um, uh, 
Uh, who provide? Okay, all right. Marxist writers. Analysis. And um, there you go. Um, that's that's the situation there. Now, we know the situation for American working families right now is not good. Not good at all. Uh, at this point, the price of fuel is through the roof. The price of food is through the roof. Um, there is not a good situation in many communities across the country. Uh, you know, on Thanksgiving, the power grid collapsed in Southern California. 64,000 people had no electricity on Thanksgiving. Um, we're getting ready for a winter, and they're fearing that that kind of thing could happen once again. We saw what happened last year in Texas. And shout out to the John Brown volunteers who are in Texas right now. We have our Center for Political Innovation outreach team. The John Brown volunteers are right now in Texas, in San Angelo, uh, ready to help out that community and do good work. Very proud of them. And, um, you know, but, but we're worried about the power, power grid and what could happen. Uh, the price of heating gas is going to be very high this winter. Um, you know, it's going to be quite expensive for working families to heat their homes. Uh, you know, the price of, of heating gas is high because of the, the shortages and because of the pandemic and, and the supply being low, et cetera. Um, but it gets beyond that. Now, I no one's paying any attention to this. You never hear anything about this on mainstream media. This is a this is a really important story. You never hear anything about it, anything about it in mainstream media. They they just pretend it's not there. Thank goodness for alternative media. You know, RT we talk about this stuff. Um, Press TV talks about it. Um, Convo Couch. You know, you know, uh, Jimmy Dore, people like that will talk about this kind of thing. But but the World Food Program of the United Nations uh, is at this point um, announcing that uh, we are on the brink of a famine of biblical proportions. Now, this is David Beasley, the director of the World Food Pro Program of the UN, is warning that there is about to be a huge amount of malnutrition across the world. Now, you'd think that would be front page news. That would be headline news, but it's not. It's not headline news, um, right? Um, okay. 1916, Irish Rebellion. Uh, you'd think it would be frontline news. I mean, that's huge. But across Africa, uh, in parts of Asia and other, other places, there is a danger of mass malnutrition. And Russia uh, would like to do something about it. Russia has stepped up. Uh, you know, Russia has had a huge expansion of their farming sector, and they would like to do something about it. China would also like to do something about it. Uh, they've stepped up to, to do something about it. Now, now, these are all really important stories. The fact that shootings in the United States are expanding, the fact that there was just a, uh, a white supremacist uh, march uh, that happened in Washington, D.C., the fact that Kamala Harris is a deranged, you know, a deranged, dangerous person, and her staff is, you know, is jumping ship and talking about how hostile she is. I mean, look, look, back to the Kamala Harris thing, okay? Being vice president 
at this point, Kamala Harris has only given one interview since June. Uh, she does not give press conferences. She's not doing very much. So if her staff is collapsing right now, could you imagine what would happen with her in the White House? Okay. And this is this is the woman who, you know, Joe Biden is not a young guy. Uh, he's not exactly a, a spring chicken, as they say. And we're about to possibly have a completely dysfunctional, dangerous person who called, who can't even keep her own staff as vice president while not doing anything as vice president. We're on the brink of possibly having her as president. That's very disturbing. Um, now, all of that's very important. And the World Food Program and what they're talking about, about hunger, that is extremely important. All of these things I just talked to you about are very important. However, that is not what U.S. mainstream media is talking about right now. That is not what U.S. mainstream media has decided to emphasize right now. Uh, this is what U.S. mainstream media is emphasizing. Containment can work against China, too. This is the Weekend Wall Street Journal. Containment can work against China, too. And let me add... This is, this is classic. Russia troop buildup near Ukraine grows. So instead of, instead of acknowledging what big problems we have here in the United States and also what big problems we have globally due to the free market capitalist system, the fact that our country is falling apart, uh, the fact that our economy is in shambles, the fact that we're facing massive inflation, uh, the fact that people are going to school and murdering each other, uh, the fact that neo-Nazis are mobilizing and marching in Washington, D.C., the fact that we have a dangerous, a dangerous lunatic as vice president who can't even keep her staff together when she's not doing anything and is somebody who, who you know, is very easily manipulated and, and wants to destroy and has a very dangerous wreck record, the fact that people are starving all over the world, that is not what our media is focused on. Our media is focused on the idea that we should be scared of Russia and scared of China. And that is the focus of American media right now. Be afraid of Russia, be afraid of China. Be afraid of Russia, be afraid of China. That is what US media is focusing on right now. Now, you gotta love this, right? Containment can work against China too. What does containment mean in relation to China? Now, I said this last time, but it bears repeating. How many overseas military bases does China have? It has one overseas military base, one in Djibouti. It has one overseas military base. How many overseas military bases does the United States have? At least 850. So how on earth, how on earth are we needing to contain China. What is how is China expanding? Are you talking about, you know, in Thailand where they build bridges? Are you talking about in Africa where they build power plants? Like what what is this China what are we containing with China? What what is this desire to contain China? It's like what I mean it's like if you're containing somebody that means they're going someplace. What is China doing? China is not engaging in any aggression anywhere in the world. There is not any Chinese aggression happening anywhere. But we're supposed to contain them. How are we containing them? 
You know, I mean, I mean, because they make good cell phones. Is that what we're supposed to contain? That that they make cell phones that are better than Apple phones that have, uh, you know, that have better, uh, better battery life, better cameras on them, last longer. I mean, is that what we're supposed to contain? Are we supposed to contain them from from building power plants and schools and and hospitals in developing countries? I mean, are we supposed to contain them from building bridges and roads and highways in, in you know in the Belt and Road? Like, what what are we supposed to contain China for? I mean, this is this is absolutely ridiculous. Contain China what, from what? You know, are we supposed to make them take their? Oh, you can't have your one military base in Djibouti. This is absolutely ridiculous. Meanwhile, there's all this, you know, they want to contain China, is what they're telling us. Contain China, contain China, contain China. Meanwhile, the United States is trying to break apart China. The United States is playing up the idea that Muslims are oppressed in the Uyghur regions. The United States and Hollywood loves the Dalai Lama and his Tibet separatist movement. The United States is doing its best to try and build up, you know, Taiwan separatist elements. Joe Biden is inviting the government on Taiwan uh, to participate in his his democracy summit, his so-called democracy or his hypocrisy summit that's coming up. Uh, I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. The United States has been funding, uh, you know, chaos and, and extremist protests in Hong Kong. If anything, it should be China that is containing the United States. I mean, I, I mean, you know, the United States, every section of China, um, every section of China that uh, that uh, that is that has any any history or anything, the United States is trying to separate from China. They want to break the Uyghur regions away. They want to break Tibet away. They want to break Hong Kong away. They want to break Taiwan away. Next thing you know, the United States is going to want to break Manchuria away. The United States is going to want to break Hunan away. This is absolutely ridiculous. The United States is is giving this impression that China is a big threat. China is this big, scary threat and saying we need to contain China. At the same time, at the same time that the United States is actively trying to break apart China. Right. China has one overseas military base. China has not invaded anybody since Vietnam. Right. They invaded Vietnam in 1978 due to the Kampuchea War. But since 1978, China has not invaded anybody. Uh, China has not engaged in any military aggression. Uh, You know, you know, and and the United States is actively trying to break apart China. But we're supposed to contain China. This is the dumbest thing I have ever seen. But this is the narrative that we're getting from Washington. We shouldn't be afraid of Joe Biden's mismanagement of the economy that's driving the price of food and driving the price of fuel up. Oh, no. We shouldn't be worried about the fact that we have an antisocial culture that is, you know, that is highly conducive to insanity and guns are so easily available and we have young men going to their universities and their schools and murdering their classmates. No, don't be worried about that. Don't be worried about neo-Nazis marching in Washington, D.C. Don't be worried about, you know, cra- our deranged, psychotic vice president and how her staff is falling apart. Don't even be worried about the fact that we're on the brink of a global famine. Be worried about China and the need to contain China when China isn't even doing anything. This is utterly ridiculous. And, 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 and this is U.S. media, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. So now, in addition to this idea that China somehow needs to be contained, we've got them playing up this idea that Russia, Russia is building up troops on the Ukrainian border. 
Folks, Russia has the right to move troops around inside of Russia. Right? Let's just get that out of the way. Second of all, what's going on in Ukraine? What is going on in Ukraine right now? Didn't get any press in American media. I don't blame you if you don't know about this because U.S. media isn't telling you this. It's not getting any attention. But right now in Ukraine, the Ukrainian government is killing its own people with drones. Now, Vladimir Putin called up the Turkish president, Erdogan two days ago and said to him on the phone, we're not happy about the fact that you, Erdogan, sold drones to the Ukrainian government and you've used them on your own people. And that's, that is the truth. You know, in the eastern regions of Ukraine, where people are Russian-speaking, uh, where people, you know, have a more positive feeling about Russia, the government of Ukraine has been deploying Turkish drones and they've been attacking, they've been conducting drone strikes against their own people in Donetsk, in Don, you know, the Donbass region, in Luhansk. They, they, they have been droning their own people. Now, Russia may have moved some soldiers around, we are told. But we shouldn't be worried about the U.S.-backed, U.S.-armed, U.S.-funded government in Ukraine the government that the United States installed in 2014 in a coup, we shouldn't be worried about that. We're supposed to be worried, uh, you know, and the fact that they're killing their own people with drones. We're supposed to be worried that Russia, in response to, you know, the Ukrainian government murdering its own people with drones and escalating its military forces, uh, we're supposed to be worried that they may have moved troops around in their own country. Let's talk about facts here, right? 14,000 people have died in Ukraine, right? In 2014, Ukraine had an elected president named Viktor Yanukovych, who was friendly to Russia. You know, wasn't a communist or a socialist, wasn't really an anti-imperialist, but he was friendlier to Russia. And the USA and the US State Department and George Soros and USAID and the Ford Foundation and all the liberal NGOs, they destabilized the country. They funded a protest movement called Euromaiden. They, they supported and backed a bunch of far-right you know, neo-Nazi groups, basically groups that admire the Nazis. Um, and those groups got together and they toppled the government and it was called Euromaiden. And in 2014, the Ukrainian government was brought down in a coup. It was an armed fascist coup and they seized control of the government buildings in Ukraine. They unfurled the Confederate flag of the United States. They un unfurled the Celtic cross of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, they unfurled all kinds of far-right symbols associated with Stepan Bandera and other Nazi collaborators in Ukraine, and they overthrew the Ukrainian government. And uh, and since then, the Ukraine, you know, since the government's been overthrown, the new regime in Kiev, uh, at that point, uh, the new regime set up a special wing of the Ukrainian military for fascists. Uh, it's called the Azov Battalion. The Azov Battalion was set up, and it's a special wing of the Ukrainian government for fascists. It's a, an ultra-nationalist division of, of fascists and admirers of Hitler, admirers of Ukrainian Nazi collaborators. They've been tearing down the World War II memorials, uh, and, and they, they've conducted horrendous massacres, and it, it is a, it a vile, vile, despicable group, and uh, they, they have seized power. And the people in the eastern regions don't accept this. Uh, they want to continue speaking Russian, their own language. Uh, you know, they want to keep the World War II memorials up. And so in the eastern regions of Ukraine, they've separated. 
um, and um, they've separated. And so rather than recognizing, you know, the territorial autonomy and abiding by the Minsk agreement, uh, we have a situation where the government in Ukraine uh, is now conducting drone warfare against its own people. It's killed 14,000. 14,000 people have died uh, in this conflict. The USA calls it a, a frozen conflict that's been going on. Um, and this is the situation. Now, in response to this escalation with drone strikes being conducted against the Russian-speaking people in the eastern regions and such, uh, is it possible that Russia may have, have you know, prepared itself for a possible attack from these extremists. Of course. You know, I don't know about Russian troop movements. I'm not over there. I, I, you know, but are they preparing to invade Ukraine? Of course not. The Russian foreign ministry has come out and said, no, we have no intention of invading Ukraine. We're not invading Ukraine. We're a bit concerned about this escalation. Meanwhile, and again, this isn't getting any press. You would never have heard about this if you only pay attention to American media. Three Ukrainian spies were caught in Russia Three Ukrainian spies, a father and a son and another guy, all of them directly tied to the U Ukrainian intelligence services. They were caught with dynamite, TNT, and they were planning to blow up a number of targets inside of Russia, military targets. Three, three Ukrainian spies were in Russia with dynamite, you know, going around plotting to blow up Russian military bases. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Right now, we're supposed to. But do you find any of that in this article here that I'm about to hold up in The Wall Street Journal? No, 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 no. We're supposed to be terrified that Russia is somehow about to invade Ukraine. But the reality of the situation is, no, the Ukrainian government is murdering its own people with drones from Turkey. Uh, the Ukrainian government is tearing down World War II memorials. The Ukrainian government sent three spies over the border into Russia to conduct bombings and 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 try to blow up Russian military targets, including like naval bases and such, Black Sea and, and such. Um, and at this point, you know, Putin is saying, look, he's saying, look, if, if the U.S. Army goes into Ukraine, if the U.S. Army is going into Ukraine. If the U.S. military, if 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 the NATO forces move into Ukraine, that's a red line. That's a red line. That's a red line. That that look, the United States has reportedly, repeatedly promised that NATO would not expand further eastward, uh, and it continues to do so. And in 2014, Obama toppled the Ukrainian government. And now we have a situation where, you know, there's talk of the, of the USA moving missiles, more and more missiles into Eastern Europe. The Ukrainian government is escalating its attacks on its own people in the Eastern regions. And, uh, and Putin is saying, look, this is a red line. This is a red line. We're not going to stand for this, right? If you, if you, you know, you know, get ready to attack us on the Ukrainian border, uh, we're not going to tolerate that. Well, Biden said, well, I, I don't accept anybody's red line. Now, on Tuesday, Putin and Biden are supposed to speak over video link. Well, thank goodness for that. There's going to be a video link conference between Russian President Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden, and they are going to talk this out. Now, I hope that there's able to be some kind of resolution to this. This is really disturbing. Um, and, it, you know, there's an old, there's a movie. I don't know if anyone's ever seen this movie. It's a movie, um, and it, it might be good for you to watch. I mean, it's not exactly, it's not necessarily a communist movie. Um, 
It's not necessarily an anti-imperialist movie. It's a movie from the 90s called Wag the Dog. Have you ever heard of this? It's called Wag the Dog. And it's a movie, it's a movie from the 1990s um, about a president uh, whose approval ratings are sinking. His approval ratings are sinking. He's unpopular. So he decides to have a war, to have a war in order to make himself more popular. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the film, the film shows, and the premise of the film is that, that the war never actually happens. It's all staged on TV, basically. It's a fake war. Um, it's, it's, it's fake. It never happened. Right. Um, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, um, and it's a, it's a fake war and it's, it's, you know, staged on CNN and the president does it to help his approval ratings. And you'll notice though, that the reason that that movie hit home is because there's a really common pattern in U S history, which is that whenever any president is under attack in the United States. Whenever any president is under attack, that's when they escalate their international operations. Uh, for example, Donald Trump, when he was facing impeachment, what did he do? Kill Qasem Soleimani. Right in the middle of Donald Trump's impeachment, he murdered the top Iranian general and escalated us to the brink of World War III. Do you remember that? Why do you think that was? Well, Donald Trump was being impeached. And you will also recall that when Bill Clinton, uh, you know, got a blowjob from Monica Lewinsky and that was all over the news, what did he do? He escalated his attack on, on Kosovo and he escalated his attacks on Sudan. Why? Well, he was facing an impeachment scandal. He was in trouble. Uh, you'll notice that George W. Bush was wildly, was very unpopular. The economy was tanking uh, after he took office. Everything was going down. But then 9-11 happened and he escalated and he invaded Iraq and he was popular and he got reelected. That this is what U.S. presidents do uh, when they are unpopular. You'll remember Barack Obama coming out of, you know, into his first term. In Obama's first term, you know, the economy wasn't getting better and, um, and you know, things weren't going well. The Republicans sweeped, you know, the House of Representatives. And, 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 and then what did Obama do? He, you know, he escalated. You had the Arab Spring 2011. And, and 2011, you had the Arab Spring, the bombing of Libya, the launching of the intervention in Syria. That when U.S. presidents are under, under attack, when they are sinking, when they are crashing and burning, when their popularity is decreasing, when they're being impeached, what do they do at that point? At that point, then U.S. presidents escalate their international threats and aggression. Why? 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 What sense does this make? Now, some people say, well, it's the rally around the flag effect, right? Well, the idea is that if you're a president and you're leading the country at war, everyone wants to be with you because everyone's unified by the patriotism and all that. No, not anymore. During the, the Cold War, during the 50s, sure, there was some truth in that. During the, I think Richard Nixon, when he was vice president, he was unpopular, but then somebody threw eggs at him. The Chilean protesters threw eggs at him and suddenly he was popular. But that was, that's old. That's really old. But why is it that when Bill Clinton was, was doing bad, he escalated the wars? When Bush was doing badly, he escalated the wars. When Biden, you know, now is doing badly, he escalates the wars. When Donald Trump is facing impeachment, he murders Qasem Soleimani. What, what happened? Why is, why is this? It's because these leaders are not accountable to us, okay? Our government is not accountable to we the people. Our government is accountable to the war makers. And when you're in trouble with your boss, 
You do your job really well. You try to prove that you're the man for the job, right? And these guys are in danger of losing their jobs. So they, they do, they try to please their bosses, the war makers. That's who the bosses of the presidents are. The war makers, the military industrial complex, the Eastern establishment, the global monopoly capitalist system that enforces itself with war. That's, that's who tells these presidents what to do. That's who's account, who they're accountable to. And that's ultimately, let me add, that's ultimately who decides whether they stay or go. It's the, it's the big bankers and bosses and monopolists, the big corporations. They're the ones who decide whether a president sinks or swims. Right? Richard Nixon stepped down, you will remember, because the New York Times and the Washington Post and many of the most high-ranking figures in U.S. society, many of the big corporations, got tired of him. And so he was out. You'll recall Lyndon Johnson uh, did, not, uh, did not renew, uh, did not run for another term as president, uh, largely because the Vietnam War wasn't going so well. He wasn't willing to escalate the Vietnam War as much as the war makers wanted. And so he had to go. He didn't seek another term as president. Um, you know, Jimmy Carter, uh, you'll recall, he, you know, he had, there was a bit of a fight going on within the ruling class and he signed the SALT Treaty with the Soviet Union. And all these retired generals took out an ad in the New York Times condemning him. And he was blamed for losing Iran and allowing the Iranian revolution to happen. And so, you know, that Jimmy Carter was, was removed. He didn't get a second term. Uh, you know, the economy tanked and crashed and, uh, and he was forced out of office and you had Ronald Reagan. That ultimately it's the big bankers and monopolists and big corporations they're the ones who ultimately decide what presidents, uh, whether a president goes or stays. So when a president is sinking and crashing and burning, they escalate the wars because that's what their bosses want. Their bosses want wars. That's what they want, right? If you're doing badly at your job, if your job's in question, you you know you do a good job. You try to you know you know show you know you, you work as hard as you can. Show your boss that you're doing a good job, that you're irreplaceable. Well, that is what Joe Biden is doing right now, as he's crashing and burning, as he's presiding over the demolition of the U.S. economy. As you know, he promised Joe Biden promised us that all the problems of the pandemic, you know, which Trump totally mismanaged. It was all Trump, right? Trump, Trump's a buffoon. He's not wearing a mask. He's an idiot and I'm going to get in there and I'm going to solve it, right? You know, Donald Trump mishandled the pandemic. He's a he's a buffoon, but I'm going to get there and I'm going to solve it. Did that happen, folks? Just saying. I mean, I'm I'm not saying it would be would be better with Trump here. I mean, we all saw how bad Trump was, but Biden's whole premise was I'm going to fix it. Trump is the problem, I am the solution. Joe Biden is clearly not the solution. He's clearly not the solution. Um, you know, uh, and, uh, it looks like Joe Biden's solution to his sinking approval ratings is bomb back better. That's basically the policy of the Biden administration, bomb back better. He's going to bomb back better. Uh, he is going to escalate with China. He's going to escalate with Russia. He is going to hold his stupid hypocrisy summit in Washington, D.C., and beat his chest about what a, you know, what a, what a war hawk and foreign policy and foreign interventionist he is. Uh, and, uh, and, and this is very scary stuff, 
right? Bomb back better seems to be the Biden plan. He's going to fix the U.S. economy. He's going to he's going to stay in office despite, you know, being a pretty awful president as far as we can see right now, despite wrecking the economy, despite squeezing, you know, Americans for the cost of fuel and, you know, despite, you know, privatizing our infrastructure. Uh, he's going to bomb back better. That's what the Biden administration offers. Bomb back better. That's what he's got for us. That's how he's going to fix the economy. Um, and it's it's abysmal. Uh, I don't think we should stand for it. I really do not think that we should stand for it. Um, so that's how I wanted to open up tonight. Um, I just wanted to give you kind of a, a lowdown on world events. I, I sorry, I, I apologize for being a little bit dark. You know, I think there's something something in the air right now, right? Because, folks, I just wanted to talk about this. You know, these these opening remarks are going to be a little longer than usual. But that's okay. I'm still going to answer. I'm still writing down all your super chats. Got them written down here. And keep the super chats rolling in, folks. That's what I'm on here to do is answer your questions. That's the whole second half of the show. But um, the only thing we have is our organizations. You know, there is, you know, I am I'm corny in my own way, right? I, I am, I, I love communist music. Right. If Lily is watching now, one of the best things, one of the big bonds that I have with Comrade Lily, who went to Nicaragua with us, is that we love to sing communist songs. Right. And it's it's getting to be holiday season. So every time I go into a restaurant or go into a store, I hear the piano playing and I'm thinking to myself, you know, you know what? It's supposed to be, oh, Christmas tree. But I'm thinking the people's flag is deepest red. It's shrouded off our martyr dead. And ere their limbs grew stiff and cold, our hearts blood eyed its every fold. Then raise the scarlet standard high. Within its shade we live and die. Though cowards flinch and traitors sneer, we'll keep the red flag flying here. When you start thinking of those words and not, oh, Christmas tree, every time this time of year that you hear that song, you're a real communist, by the way, right? If, 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 you know, if you, if you, if you immediately start thinking the people's flag is deepest red, then you're a real communist. But, but I digress. I digress. What's, what's the super chat here? Books on liberation theology. All right. Uh, uh, but, but anyhow, um, I wanted to also say, but but the point I was making was that I like communist songs, and some communist songs are better than others. Um, there's one particular. Uh, there's there's some Canadian communists who, um, you know, um, who composed some really wild songs. A section of the Anglo-American ruling class thinks nuclear war is the only way to stop historical progress. That may be a feeling these days, right? All right, all right, action of. Ruling class wants nuclear war to stop progress. Um, and um, but but there's another. There's one of these Canadian communist uh, communist groups, uh, and they they recorded some songs. And one of the songs that they composed uh, is called "The Party Is the Most Precious Thing." Uh, let the party seed in every factory multiply her ranks relentlessly. Stand strong in her defense against the enemy because the party is the most precious thing. The party is the most precious thing. And, you know, 
it's funny because I'm not in a party right now. I can't be a member of any political party right now because I, I work as a journalist and that would make me biased, right? I mean, I can't be loyal to any particular political party, um, you know. Um, but, but, you know, organizations are really what gives socialist, socialism strength. Just believing in socialism, having a Twitter page where you tweet stuff out about socialism, uh, that really doesn't give us very much. I mean, it's good to get ideas out there. I'm all for, look, I'm on here on social media talking at you all. And, you know, I, I make, I've written books and stuff. Ideas are important. But at the end of the day, it's really building community. It's really building community that makes any of this matter. Until we have community, until we have an organization, until we have a group of people working together, you know, cooperating, you know, putting their egos in check, uh, you know, being willing to make sacrifices, being willing to uh, do things they don't necessarily want to do, um, being willing to uh, to compromise with other people, being willing to work with people we disagree with. Until we have groups of people, until we have groups of people who are committed to these ideas, cooperating with each other, until as, when we don't have that, we have nothing, all right? You know, that is really, at the end of the day, what we need, right? And, you know, you can tweet all day. You can, you can hashtag all day. You can Facebook post all day. We can live stream all day. But until you have a group of people who are actually committed to making this happen, we really don't have much, right? Until we have a community of people to be part of, we don't really have anything. And that's what I am committed to doing. And with this YouTube channel, I mean, since I started doing these streams, I've had this YouTube channel for years, right? Federal debt, right? Um, federal debt. Who do we owe? Um, so until we, until we, you know, and when I set up this YouTube channel years ago, like, you know, first this was a YouTube channel where I put stuff related to the political groups I was in. But, you know, two, three years ago, I started doing these YouTube streams. And immediately a community developed around these streams, right? We had our running jokes about unnamed diet beverage. We said out of the movement and to the masses. We said we need a government of action that will fight for working families. We developed our catchphrases and, and a community started to grow out of this. This wasn't just entertainment. This wasn't just infotainment. This was a community. This channel has always been a community. You know, um, we care about each other. And there's different voices that have, have blossomed as part of this community. Dust James, right? Dust James, you know, was somebody who had listened to these streams. He started his own channel, right? And he's interviewing people and he's, he's on there. David Fox emerged from this community. Uh, you know, uh, San Angelo Solidarity, David Cedillo and his, his group emerged from this community. Um, uh, you know, uh, what else emerged, you know, uh, you know, uh, I mean, eventually, and eventually it was as this started to turn into a community, uh, I was happy and that's my goal for this channel. And I might do things a little bit differently than like so-called professional YouTubers do, right? I, I do things a little bit differently. I'm doing this from my phone right now. Um, I, I write down the chats by hand. Um, I do all of that because because, you know, I'm doing this differently. I am here to build a community. I like to speak. I like to tell jokes. I like to answer questions. But at the end of the day, the goal here is to build a community, 
to build a community because we don't have a community. We don't have a group of people who are committed to these ideas working together. We don't have anything. And I, I feel like that understanding is absent. Um, you know, it's, it's starting to be wintertime. It's getting to be dark more. They talk about seasonal depression. Uh, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people this time of year, you know, is a time that people think about being close with their family. And a lot of us who are communists are people that, uh, you know, there may be issues with the family. The family doesn't accept our political beliefs or or doesn't particularly, you know, so this can be a hard time of year for, for communists in particular. It can be a hard time of year for everybody. I mean, you know, Black Friday this year, I mean, it barely didn't, practically didn't happen, right, Black Friday, because of the fact that, uh, that the store shelves were empty, the supply chain. Uh, you know, and, the, you know, last year we had a pandemic, uh, you know, Christmas where we were all, you know, Christmas time, everyone was basically stuck by themselves, uh, you know, and th these could, this can be a hard time of year. And it's starting, you know, it's, it's December. And but I'll tell you, among the folks I work with, a lot of people I work with are fighting with other people. I am having to, I mean, I have to tell you, the amount of the amount of personal disagreements between people that I have had to mediate in the last week has been massive, right? I got one person who's arguing with another person. I got another person who's arguing with this person. I got this person who won't talk to this person. And everybody seems, everybody seems to be very, very, I'm just, I'm just dealing with a lot of, of trying to, uh, trying to get people to work together with each other. Right. And you know, I, you all know about the drama with me. Um, right. Um, the advocate for communism. Um, And, you know, there's there's just a lot of people disagreeing with each other. And, you know, I, I mean, I try to, I, one of my goals is to try and get people to work together. I feel like I have accomplished my mission. If I can get people together, if I can get people together working for a common goal, despite disagreeing, if I can get people to try and see things from other people's perspective. At that point, I've accomplished something. That's what I'm trying to do, right? And that's the whole purpose of... Well, I don't know what happened, but, you know, here we are. Like I said, we're going to keep going no matter what. <clears throat> but anyway, but anyway, as I was saying, my goal with this YouTube channel is to build community. I really, you know, I'm not in this to, to win the best YouTuber award. I'm not in this to, you know, I, I'm in this to build community. I mean, if you read my book, Bread Tube Serves Imperialism, the book was almost an advertisement for the Center for Political Innovation. I, I you know, I, I wrote the, I put the manifesto of the Center for Political Innovation at the end of the book. Um, and I am here trying to build a community. I am trying to build an organization. I'm trying to build a community, not trying to build a political party. I'm trying to build a think tank, trying to build a community. Um, if someone can take the link and post this in the other chat and bring folks back, that would be great. I, I don't know what happened, but we just have to keep going, right? It's a very frustrating. Um, but that is the goal here. I am trying to build a community. That is what I aim to do. Um, and I'm trying to compromise with people. I'm trying to bring people together. I'm trying to bring people together who disagree. You know, when I was in Nicaragua, I was talking with the Nicaraguans, uh, you know, and, um, you know, it was really special. It was really special. Um, and I don't know if I should say this or not, but, you know, I, I talked to the Nicaraguans and I said, you know, you know, our organization, the Center for Political Innovation is very unique, um, 
You know, it's it's very unique. I said, because, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, I have a trans person sitting next to me. On the other hand, I have a conservative Roman Catholic sitting next to me. But we're in the same organization, the same organization, believing in socialism, believing in Marxism. And they said, that is really a special thing. You don't see that in the United States. But, you know, I'm here. I'm Caleb. On the one side of me at the table is a trans woman. On the other side of me at the table is a conservative Roman Catholic farmer from Illinois. And uh, both of them are dedicated to the group. You know, both of them were full-time John Brown volunteers. Both of them, both of them, despite disagreeing on a number of things, they were in the same organization, in the same political grouping, uh, committed to the same projects. Uh, they traveled with me to the same country. I mean, this is, this is something special. This is what real socialist movements do, right? This is what real socialist movements do, right? They have people from different walks of life, uh, you know, different walks of life brought together to serve a common purpose. That is, that is what real socialist movements do. Socialism is not a commodified identity. You're not supposed to wake up in the morning and put on some socialist shoes, get a, drive a socialist car to work, tell all your coworkers that you're a, you're, you're a, so it's not like that, right? This isn't like being a punk rocker. It's not like being a goth. It's not like being a, uh, and it's, it's not that at all. It's about building a community because ultimately that's what socialism is all about. Capitalism, capitalism creates a situation where the, the wealth increasingly centralizes in the hands of a few. A small group of people who own the banks, factories, and industries get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. And in the process, they drive the rages of the workers down. They seek to eliminate the worker from the assembly line to maximize their own profits, right? They, they drive overproduction, right? And they create a situation where fewer and fewer workers are employed and they stand outcast and starving mid the wonders they have made. They increasingly drive the proletariat into poverty to maximize their profits. This is, this is the situation where increasingly the working class is cast out. Have you seen these these homeless encampments out in California. It's way more than Skid Row. These homeless encampments, I saw just a little bit of it when I was out in Los Angeles. Unbelievable. These homeless encampments, and we have them here in New York City now. All kinds of people that have been cast, outcast and starving. And you think, you think about these people, these people who've been outcast and starving. You know, these are the people that built America. America was not built by Rockefeller. It wasn't built by Carnegie and DuPont. America was built by working people, working people who built this country. And yet now we stand outcast and starving mid the wonders that we have made. The capitalist bosses don't have any room for us at the assembly line any longer. And so they're in homeless encampments and their homes have been foreclosed and their kids are addicted to opioids. And the homeless encampments are expanding. And the people that are outcast and starving are growing, right? And the number of people who don't have a place in this system, who don't have a place in this system, the number of young people, you know, in their 20s and 30s stuck living with their parents because this system can't provide them with a job in which they can support themselves and go out on their own and start their own family. This is a crime. But what happens? What happens as a result of when, when all this happens? Well, what happens? 
Well, the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx says, the, the working people form combinations. What is a combination? It's an organization. They start to care for each other. They build communities. They come together. That's the only way human beings can survive is with each other. When people are poor, when people are struggling, when they're desperate, they start to need each other. They start to depend on each other. That's why, you know, I think that leftists ranting against the family is a stupid line, right? Now, it's one thing to talk about the oppression of women, which is very important. It's one thing to talk about, about the right of LGBT people to have their family the way they want to have it with two moms and two dads. That's fine with me. But when we say that we're against the family, you know, that might work among middle-class folks, you know, the suburban, you know, teenagers, you know, Vosh, he probably loves that. Yeah, I don't want my mom and dad to tell me what to do. You know, I just want their money. Yeah, I can see Vosh. Vosh probably loves destroy the family, right? He'll never have to clean his room again. Um, but, but among working people, you can't be against the family. Because among working people who are struggling, the family is very important. When people are poor, they learn to depend on each other. They learn to depend on each other. They need each other. They need their community. They, and, and it's very important. So we shouldn't rant against the family. And, and when people are struggling, when they are outcast and starving mid the wonders they have made, when the capitalist system has no room for them at the assembly line anymore, when people are desperate, connections relationships. Those things are so important. So important. So important. But the capitalists very much don't want that. The capitalists very much want us all to be atomized individuals. They want us all to be isolated. They want us all to be on our own. Why? So we're easier to control, right? If you're an atomized individual, you don't have a community to be part of. You don't have an identity to cling to. You don't have beliefs to fight for. You're just a liberal atomized individual doing your own thing, man. You know, if that's what you are, you they can roll right over you. They can roll right over you. There's a there's an old union song, right? Um, what is it? Step by step, the longest march can be won. Many stones can form an arch, but singly none. And by union, what we will can be accomplished. Still, drops of water turn a mill. I mean, this is this is the understanding. When working people are desperate and they start to bond with each other. And they start to build communities. Suddenly, they start to build a block. They start to build a block. And that block is powerful. And it's those blocks, those unions, those combinations, those associations, those Soviets, those workers' councils, those Bolivarian circles, those citizens' power councils. That's what gives real strength. The block. When people stand arm in arm, when they bond together, when they find a way to work with each other, when they find a way to accept each other, when they get over their racism and their homophobia, when they get over their sexism, when men can stand behind powerful women, 
when people that said I would never associate with a gay person or a trans person say, you know what? We're on the same side in this struggle and they get over their homophobia or their transphobia, right? When white and black stand together, when white workers say that they're going to fight for the rights of black people, right? When, when, when all of these divisions, these artificial divisions the capitalists have created, when this desire to just be your own individual, to think that you're all on your own is broken down, when people form a block, that block that they form is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. And that is what the capitalists are very afraid of. They're always trying to cultivate this extreme individualism on your part because they're afraid of this block emerging. This is what they're afraid of. This is really what they're afraid of. And, and on the right, they're pushing libertarianism and the Ayn Rand stuff. On the left, it's identitarianism. It's, you know, SJW and, and, and all of this. But they're afraid of blocks being formed. That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid of a block being formed. And that's what, you know, that corny, silly Canadian song, the party is the most precious thing, is trying to get at, right? You know, spread the party's seed in every factory, multiply her ranks relentlessly, stand strong in her defense against the enemy because the party is the most precious thing. That's what it's getting at. That's what it's getting at. That's what the solidarity forever is all about, right? When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. But what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one, but the union makes us strong. That's what it's getting at. That's what it's getting at. But if you want to be in a group of people, if you want to cooperate in a group of people, you have to humble yourself. It requires humbling yourself. You have, to, you have to shed some of your pride. You have to be willing to get up and say, I made a mistake. You have to be able to get up and say, you know what? I don't necessarily want to do this. This isn't how I want to spend my Saturday morning. This isn't how I want to spend my Friday afternoon. This isn't how I want to spend, you know, but this is this is what I'm committed to. These are th this community and what it stands for. Its goals are important, and that's what you have to do. If you're going to be in a group, you're going to be in an organization. That's what you have to do. You have to be willing. You have to be willing to to give of yourself. You have to be willing to make sacrifices. You have to be willing to to work with somebody you don't like. You have to be willing to try and find the good in somebody that you find obnoxious. Did you know that? Um, if you're going to be in an organization, at some point, you are going to have to work with somebody who is a jackass, who's obnoxious. The second they open their mouth, you're just like, shut your mouth. You're an obnoxious person. But it's going to be your job, not only to tolerate them, but to find whatever goodness within that person that you can bond with, that you can connect with, to just find it, to find it and bond with it and cultivate it, to find the little bit of good. That's what you're going to have to do. It's not easy. It's not easy to be in an organization. It is not easy to be in an organization. It's not easy to be married, folks. It's not easy to be married. Folks, it's not easy to live in a neighborhood. Folks, it's not easy to work in a workplace or an office with somebody. Getting along with people is hard. It's hard. It's difficult. It is not easy. It's not easy. 
It's not easy, but it's what gives meaning to life. It's what gives meaning to life. Now, um, now the reason I, I warned you all that my opening remarks tonight were going to be a little bit longer than usual, and keep the Super Chats rolling in, folks. Like I said, I'm writing them down, and we'll get to them in the second half of the show, even though the first half might be a little bit longer tonight than usual. I, I, I wanted to let you all know. Now, it's a little bit frustrating because we had to start a new stream. But, um, but I wrote an article about what the Center for Political Innovation stands for. I wrote it. I was approached by the Platypus Review. Platypus-affiliated society is this weird kind of pro-imperialist, Marxist, you know, you know, academic organization. But they took notice of the Center for Political Innovation. I think they saw the Joe Sims of the CPUSA bragging on us. And I think they saw some of my live streams and they saw this and that. And so they gave me a platform. They gave me a platform to explain what the Center for Political Innovation is. And so, um, you know, I've been on CNN before. They're, you know, they gave me a platform. I've, you know, I've, I've done interviews with many international TV networks. Uh, you know, so, I mean, if Platypus Review wants to just give me a platform to explain my views, I may not agree with a lot of things they say about the Iraq war or about whatever, but if, they'll, if they're going to give me a platform, I'll take it. So I actually linked the article below, below the last stream. Um, and uh, now that we had to open a new stream, this is continued, you don't have the link here. But I got it right in front of me. And so I'm going to read to you, and I'm going to read to you this article about what the Center for Political Innovation stands for. I'm going to read it to you. Um, and then I'll make some more, uh, some final comments. And then at that point, uh, we'll do the roll call, and then I'll answer your questions. Um, so I'm just going to read to you this article called We Are the City Building Tendency. Here we go. Since the 2008-2009 financial meltdown, interest in socialism, communism, anarchism, and various anti-capitalist theories have been widespread among the U.S. public. However, this has not manifested itself in the revival of the labor movement or the enactment of social democratic reforms. Austerity and the march toward a low-wage police state have continued. Regime change wars and interventions by the Pentagon have continued with even less organized resistance than prior to the financial crash. The various sects whose leadership are veterans of the 1960s and 70s political upsurge remain more isolated than ever. While vague social democratic concepts about free health care and tax the rich have become more popular today, knowledge of actual Marxist theory is noticeably absent. In this context, feelings of opposition to the status quo, the declining economic situation, the wars, and out-of-touch elected officials have been hijacked by the right wing. Populism is considered to be the property of right-wing nationalists, while Marxism is the label put on postmodernists and social justice theoreticians emerging from the Ivy League schools. Any serious socialist should be disturbed by this situation, and I certainly have been for a number of years. The biggest awakening came in October, uh, uh, it came the in, in Zakati Park on October 20th, 2011, the day the gruesome death of Muammar Gaddafi took place. As an activist in the park, I noticed a big gap among the Occupy Wall Street activists, the seasoned left-wing activists, the Trotskyites, the NGO liberals, and the hipster trust fund anarchists 
seemed to view the destruction of Libya in an almost positive light as a revolution against a dictator who was violating human rights. But among the Midwestern working class youth, many of whom had come to New York City with almost nothing, there were very different sentiments. Though these youth were ideologically not left-wing, attracted to a mishmash of libertarianism, pseudo-anarchism, and conspiracy theories, they viewed Gaddafi in a positive light. They praised Gaddafi's efforts to build up an independent African currency, to build the African Union, and to oppose the U.S. war machine around the world. While the decaying Marxist-Leninist sect I was working with was attempting to recruit liberal activists, I began to notice and question the ineffectiveness of this strategy. This forced me to examine my own beliefs, my own motivations, my own ideology, as well as the problems facing the entire leftist milieu in a new light. In critique of the Goitha program, Marx explained the material basis for the higher stage of communism, writing, in the higher phase of communist society, after the enslaving subordination of the individual to the division of labor, and therewith also the antithesis between mental and physical labor has vanished, after labor has become not only a means of life, but life's prime want, after the productive forces have also increased with the all-around development of the individual and all the springs of cooperative wealth flow more abundantly, only then can the narrow horizon of bourgeois right be crossed in its entirety and society inscribe on its banners from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. In essence, Marx is explaining what historical materialism so brilliantly lays out in a way all other analysis cannot. Class society, social hierarchies, the state itself are all rooted in scarcity. In, in a society without the all-around development of the individual, where the productive forces and technological progress of human beings is restrained by the irrational, uh, irrationality of profits in command, much of the ugliness of the contemporary world becomes unavoidable. However, Marxism argues that with central planning of the means of production, a post-scarcity society, a vast abundance and egalitarianism can emerge. As Engels explained in Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, socialized production upon a predetermined plan becomes henceforth possible. The development of production makes the existence of different classes of society thenceforth an anachronism. In proportion as anarchy and social production vanishes, the political authority of the state dies out. Man at last, the master of his own form of social organization, becomes at the same time lord over nature, his own master free. As Lenin explained, monopolies, oligarchy, the striving for domination and not for freedom, the exploitation of an increasing number of small or weak nations by a handful of the richest and most powerful nations, all of these have given birth to the distinctive characteristics of imperialism, which compels us to define it as parasitic, decaying capitalism. The essence of Lenin's concept of imperialism as the highest stage of capitalism is that development is being restrained. The world is being kept poor, so the cartels of Wall Street and London finance, and in our age, the Malthusian social engineers of Silicon Valley can stay rich. However, when countries have ripped free 
from the monopolistic domination of Western cartels and reorganized their economies, huge successes have resulted. Socialism in the 20th century, despite the flaws and setbacks, demonstrated very clearly that it is capable of rapidly advancing technological progress and development. Russia was an agrarian, impoverished society in 1917. With state central planning, mobilizing the country around five-year plans, overcoming the artificial restraints imposed by the market, the USSR wiped out illiteracy, fully electrified, defeated the Nazi invaders, and conquered outer space. The first mobile phone was patented in the Soviet Union in 1957. Despite a NATO treaty barring the USSR from getting access to high technology, crippling economic warfare, and military threat, a home computer system was developed, and all kinds of amazing technological and scientific breakthroughs took place in the Soviet society up into the 1980s. With a communist party in power, state-run industries and banks, along with five-year plans and heavy control over the private sector, China has emerged to become the second largest economy in the world. With socialism, China has built the largest telecommunications manufacturer, the largest steel industry, the largest hydroelectric power plant in the world, as well as the fastest trains on the planet. Millions have been raised from poverty, access to education has vastly expanded, and technological achievements and breakthroughs are numerous. Socialism created a healthcare system in Cuba, which is admired all over the world for its achievements. Socialism in Bolivia created the highest GDP growth rates in South America, consistently, while paving the roads and wiping out illiteracy. Quality modern housing has been brought to even the poorest Venezuelans. Nicaraguan socialism has eradicated illiteracy and enabled thousands of indigenous people to become micro-entrepreneurs. With socialism, Libya was the top oil exporting country in Africa prior to 2011. It had the highest life expectancy according to the CIA World Factbook, and it has constructed the world's largest irrigation system. No horror story of Gaddafi's atrocities, alleged or truthful, can obscure this economic reality. While capitalism and more recently neoliberal economic reforms have left countries across Africa, Central America, and the Caribbean in crippling poverty, socialism turned Russia and China into industrial powerhouses and global superpowers. The endless browbeating of the claim that socialism never worked, communism completely failed, is an effort to obscure on the basis of human rights violations, atrocities, and selectively highlighted episodes of mismanagement, the overall obvious reality. Socialism works. And when countries break free from the imperialist global order, their achievements are significant. This should be no surprise to those who study Marx and Lenin and what they actually wrote. However, if one listens to the prevailing leftist voices in the Western world, it is highly confusing. The vision of a high-tech, post-scarcity world where human beings live out their full potential, what some have called a resource-based economy, is now considered largely the property of libertarians and other elements who worship the profit motive. Oh, did someone send me a super chat there? Did I miss a super chat? Um, okay. Books exposing anti-communists. Uh, 
The spirit of growth and optimism observed in the Soviet Union by Anna Louise Strong, H.G. Wells, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, W.E.B. Du Bois, Albert Einstein, and so many other intellectuals is now associated with the right wing and advocates of the free market. Meanwhile, many leftists now focus on the idea that capitalism is bad because it increases consumption. Capitalism is associated with, quote, buying stuff and destroying the environment. Leftism is associated with anti-consumerism and the notion that working people in this world should be poorer. Anti-imperialism has been consumed by a narrative best articulated in the Hollywood film Avatar. David Brooks summed it up in the New York Times as the oft-repeated story about a manly young adventurer who goes into the wilderness in search of thrills and profit. But once there, he meets the native people and finds they are noble and spiritual and pure. And so he emerges as their Messiah, leading them in a righteous crusade against his own rotten civilization. In this new narrative that dominates leftism, imperialism is not bad because it holds back economic development, but rather because it brings it tearing down beautiful primitive peoples away from their spiritually pure ways. The reason leftism has failed to capture the anger of the U.S. working class in a time of economic crisis is simple. Leftists no longer seek to improve their living conditions, but rather want to reduce them in the name of anti-consumerism and environmentalism. The reason leftists have, some of the most have been some of the most enthusiastic supporters of regime change wars and destabilization in Syria, Libya, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Russia, and China is because leftism no longer seeks to liberate the developing world from underdevelopment. Leftist narratives now celebrate the Dalai Lama, Wahhabi fanatics, the small minority of indigenous peoples in South and Central America who reject technology, and other groups deemed to be, quote, noble savages in the white savior fantasy of the ultra-rich. The enemy of such forces is, of course, the authoritarian Marxist regimes that build schools, hospitals, and power plants. How on earth did anti-consumerism replace the struggle to raise productive forces and living standards with, a, with society controlling the means of production? Best books. Um, how on earth, you know, uh, how on earth did the struggle to liberate the developing world from the monopolistic domination and forced poverty at the hands of Western finance get replaced with notions similar to Mother Teresa's sickening mantra of poverty is beautiful? The answer can be found in Lenin's analysis of the roots of social chauvinism in the ideological confusion following the fall of the Soviet Union. But one factor that cannot be overlooked is the direct intervention of, Western of the Western intelligence apparatus. The Congress for Cultural Freedom program of the CIA is now a matter of public record. Nominally left publications such as Partisan Review, Der Monat, Encounter, Paris Review, and others were funded by the CIA along with the Ford Foundation and Rockefeller Foundations. They highlighted the work of Susan Sontag, Irving Howe, Hannah Arendt, Mary McCarthy, and others. They reinvented leftist thought to be an expression of middle-class alienation and pessimism that, off, that labels all populism as fascist. The so-called left is a synthetic creation 
that accompanied the promotion of narcotics, narcotics with Project MKUltra, the utilization of various Eastern religious cults as proxy forces, and various other criminal activities conducted by U.S. intelligence agencies. The way U.S. culture was reinvented during the 1960s and 70s was not merely the re result of progressive anti-racist struggles and opposition to Cold War conformity, but also the result of sinister efforts to confuse the public and lessen the danger of a real anti-capitalist movement emerging within the United States. While it is an absolute taboo to discuss in leftist circles, these are facts that any serious socialist must acknowledge. The infiltration, manipulation, subsidization of what calls itself left-wing in the United States has taken a huge ideological toll. And as a result, socialism in the U.S. is in shambles as a few pieces of confused common turn wreckage scream at a much bigger layer of foundation-funded chaos worshipers, middle-class and middle-class academic anti-social elements. The broad masses of working-class Americans see their living standards falling and are open to anti-capitalist notions, but they look at the destructive entity called the left and they want no part of it. They cannot be blamed or morally shamed for doing so. Now, it may be tempting to become ideologically dogmatic and attempt to restore a more pure interpretation of Marxism in light of contemporary distortions, but that would also be a mistake. The Soviet Union collapsed because it could not effectively adjust its socialism in the way countries like Vietnam, Cuba, and China have. 20th century socialist countries often fell into the trap of attempting to build a totally egalitarian society in a state of underdevelopment and poverty, having disastrous consequences as seen in China's Cultural Revolution, Pol Pot's Democratic Kampuchea, and to a lesser degree in many other places. But the truth that Marx laid out in the critique of the Goethe program is that the entire basis, and thank you, Gleb, for the super chat, the entire basis of the communist project is unleashing human creativity and development. According to Engels, this is the very essence of human beings. The animal merely uses its environment and brings about changes in it simply by his presence. Man, by his changes, makes it serve his ends and masters it. This is the final essential distinction between man and other animals. And once again, it is labor that brings about this distinction. The Center for Political Innovation is not a new Marxist party. Democratic centralism in the United States has resulted in creating a number of irrelevant sects, none of which can truly call themselves a party in any sense and any force worthy of the label. The Center for Political Innovation does not seek to become the new vanguard or leader of the movement. Rather, the Center for Political Innovation is an educational project aiming to get out of the movement and to the masses. The goals are twofold. One, to propose a series of economic and political reforms that would challenge corporate power and force those who support these demands into confrontation with the profit-centered economic system and its global dominance. Two, to teach genuine, constructive, anti-imperialist, optimistic, scientific socialism to all who want to learn about it, facilitating debate and discussion among serious professional worker politicians about the concepts and ideology that can lead 
beyond capitalism and imperialism. We should not be afraid to question aspects of Marxist theory in order to develop socialism for our time. The anti-imperialist and socialist movements have changed a lot since the Cold War. Outside of China, much of the socialist and Marxist-led movements have embraced religious faith, most especially in Latin America. Baathism, socialism with Chinese characteristics, the anti-capitalism of Shia Muslims in the Middle East, African socialism and Bolivarianism, all reinvented socialism for their own particular country and unique circumstances. Serious revolutionaries in the United States should be actively determining how this can be done here and what will ultimately be the nature of socialism with American characteristics. Marx's ending to the Communist Manifesto contains the following instructions. In short, the communists everywhere support every revolutionary movement against the existing social and political order of things. In all these movements, they bring to the front as the leading question in each, the property question, no matter what its degree of development at the time. Americans who are angry about losing their jobs, seeing their communities destroyed by opioids, their children locked in prison for profit, and their relatives sent off to die in foreign wars should be confronted with the property question. It should be made clear that instead of weak corporate, a weak corporate regime that presides over gradually collapsing the U.S. into just another trading outpost in a global low-wage empire, another option exists. The U.S. could instead have a government of action that fights for working families. Such a government would mobilize popular power and restructure the U.S. economy to serve public good, putting banking and natural resources under public ownership and management while enacting an economic bill of rights for the population. It would seem, it would, it would see the population not as a dangerous horde to be managed, but as a reservoir of potential to be unleashed toward building a post-scarcity world freedom of abundance, freedom, and equality. Amid the ideological confusion and increasing hopelessness of U.S. society, we consider ourselves to represent the city-building tendency within the human species, and our roots go much deeper than Marx. Socrates, Confucius, Christ, Caesar, Spartacus, and so many other courageous, progressive individuals have given their lives to advancing humanity toward a higher state of being. We are an association of like-minded thinkers and dedicated agitators, cooperating in different ways in different communities across the country. Those aligned with us deliver bottled water to impoverished families and the elderly in Texas. They clean graveyards, operate within church congregations, on college campuses, in workplaces, and in neighborhoods. We distribute buttons that say cancel student debt in New York City parks. We conduct regular reading groups in Chicago and California. We travel to anti-imperialist countries. We appear on international television. We hold debates with political opponents. We publish books and much more. Our goal is to help every participant in our project to discover what their own unique contribution can be when taking up history's challenge. We want you to fulfill your potential as a revolutionary, and our organization exists not to hold you back and glorify our leaders, but to unleash you to your highest possible achievement. We reject left adventurism 
And like all responsible revolutionary organizers, we advocate a peaceful democratic transition to socialism. We recognize that as capitalism enters a crisis, the ruling classes often move to abolish democratic rights in order to preserve their power. We recognize the right of the people to defend their organizations and communities in such a context. However, we are absolutely clear that we want peace and stability, not chaos. It is capitalism that is destroying the United States of America, and socialism will rescue it, rebuilding the country on new foundations, overcoming the legacy of colonialism, slavery, and many other crimes that hang over this society as a curse. The Center for Political Innovation, its youth organization, Students and Youth for a New America, and its cadre outreach team, the John Brown Volunteers, are open to engaging with all who are willing to discuss and wrangle with how this important project can be carried out. It is in this spirit of open debate and seeking to forge groundbreaking discourse that this article has been submitted to the Platypus Review. And that was my article explaining what the Center for Political Innovation is all about. That was my article. And I'd want to just say one last thing. I want to just say one last thing. Sorry that I have this screen here. Just one last thing. Um, one last thing. Um, one last thing. Um, yeah. One last thing, which is this. Vladimir Lenin, he had a very, very famous, famous story that was his favorite story to tell when explaining the actions of the Bolsheviks. And this is the story that he would tell. He, he would tell the story of a group of peasants. There were a group of peasants. And uh, they were walking through the countryside. They're walking, there were a bunch of fields around them, and up on a hill, they saw a house. And outside the house, there was a man. And the man was waving his arms crazily, just waving his arms around. And they thought, man, that man must be having an epileptic fit. You know, that man must be rabid. He must have rabies or something. What in the world is that man doing? And there was just this man up on the hill waving his arms around, looking like a crazy lunatic. Like a crazy lunatic. But when they got closer, when they got closer to the man, they saw that he wasn't, wasn't looking crazy. He wasn't looking crazy at all. He was sharpening a knife. When you sharpen a knife, you have to wave your arm. But in reality, it looked insane. It looked erratic. But in reality, his actions were very rational. His actions were extremely rational. They made perfect sense. But from a distance, they looked crazy. From a distance, they looked crazy. But in reality, in reality, his actions were completely rational. And Lenin would tell that story to explain how the Bolsheviks operated before the Russian Revolution. Because to an average person, to an average person, the Bolsheviks looked insane. Please have that printed as a pamphlet, says Don Deering. We will. We definitely will. 
But to the average person, you know, from a distance, it looked insane, but it was actually very rational. Now, obviously, now that was Lenin's favorite story because he was explaining how the Bolsheviks, the Bolsheviks would make clear that even though it looked crazy, and even though what they're doing didn't seem to have immediate results, even though what they were aiming to accomplish, it didn't always seem to have a quick payout. At the end of the day, they were sharpening their knives and they ultimately took power. And Lenin would make that analogy many times. He told that story over and over and over again. It was his favorite story. Um, now, it's not a good story to use in our time uh, because generally people don't sharpen their own knives in the same way. Uh, we don't have peasants, you know, on up on hills and people walking through the countryside. So it's a little bit of an outdated analogy. It's from Russia in, you know, the early 1900s. But there is an old prayer, an old prayer that is used in some Christian congregations that basically expresses the same thing. I don't know if you've ever heard it. I think it's used by some Southern Baptists, but it's basically expressing the same thing. And the old prayer goes something like this. Uh, it's, you know, God, I hate flour. I hate flour. God, I hate water. I hate water. God, I hate baking soda. I hate baking soda. God, I hate shortening. I hate shortening. God, I hate ovens. I hate ovens. But if you put them all together, I sure love fresh biscuits. And uh, that kind of explains it. It kind of explains it. You know? You might hate working with somebody. You might hate Zoom conference calls that seem like they're never going to end. You might hate selling, you know, buttons and handing out stuff in the rain. You might hate having to engage with people that are backward and conservative. You might hate having to, having to lug your stuff across the country. You might, uh, you might hate uh, having to negotiate uh, you know, an agreement with somebody who's, who's politically different than you. You might, uh, you might absolutely despise uh, having, to, having to go carry big, heavy boxes. You might despise it all. But at the end of the day, you're going to love, you're going to love the fresh biscuits. At the end of the day, you're going to love the fresh biscuits. Because drops of water turn a mill. And what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. And the party is the most precious thing. And if we don't have community, we have nothing. And that concludes my opening remarks.
for tonight. So hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell, um, and, uh, and let's do the roll call. Let's do the roll call. Who's with us tonight? Names and locations. I'll call you out as I see you. Then I'll start answering your super chat questions. Names and locations. Jeff in Nicaragua. Christian in Northern New Jersey. Zachary Bunch in Richmond, Virginia. Carolyn and Dario from Brooklyn. Rice in Adelaide, Australia. West Virginia. JT24 in Mississippi. Mo in Toronto, Canada. Micah in Las Vegas. Robert in Hawaii. Ryan in Oakland. Wisconsin. Tristan in Maryland. Nate in Chicago. Cleveland, uh, uh, Cleveland Pirate Alex. Uh, Tristan, shout out to you, by the way. Uh, Clyde, Clyde Bank, James Graham and Clyde Bank. Tulare, California. Neil Frazier in Hong Kong. Shout out to you. He says, thanks, Zachary. Oz Whistles, Red Precarian, Ramsey, Cincinnati. Rougemont, North Carolina. Springfield, Missouri. Ash in Chicago. Greg in Hong Kong, China. Jenna Sullivan in Connecticut. Theo in Pennsylvania. Char Char Darling is out in San Angelo. John Witte is in Houston. Max the Sax is in D.C. Good, good stuff. Um, uh, Lockport, New York is with us. Um, Andy in New Zealand. Uh, Sam from Missouri. Kieran from San Diego. Mike in North Carolina. Los Angeles. Eddie from Indonesia. Nazare from West Covina, California. Olympia, Washington. Grand Junction, Colorado, Shia from Montreal, Kendall in San Diego, Temple City, Balthazar in Oakland, San Miguel from Mexico, Richard in Tacoma, Don D out in NYC. I We need to get together, you and me, Don D. We're going to get together pretty soon. Uh, we've been meaning to get together for so long. Sean in Phoenix, Tara Hoot, uh, that's in, in Indiana, Reno and in Nevada, Bolton, England, up the John Brown Volunteers. Thank you very much. Saludos, Joe Gale in Nassau County. We love you, Joe Gale. I think we're getting together next week too, if possible. Uh, Neil Fraser in Hong Kong, China. Um, saw you. I hope you saw my second super chat. Did I miss a super chat here tonight? Did I miss a super chat? Go rolling back, rolling back. Uh, oh yeah, excellent analysis. We all know the capitalist class will not go down. What do you think, um, revolutionary? Um, okay. All right, revolutionary violence inevitable. Rev. Violence. Inevitable. All right. We're writing it down. Um, all right. And was there another super chat? I listened to your article, Caleb. That is great writing. Thank you for sharing it. You're very welcome, Red Precarian. You're very, very welcome. All right. Speed up. I don't want to miss any super chats. Um, Chaya from Montreal, uh, Joe Gale, Nassau County, Jordan in Indiana, Rocky and Rocky Mountains, Carmen from Reading, Pennsylvania, Auckland, New Zealand, Uruguay, Mosin from Iran, Michigan, Chicago, Smedley Butler. Uh, that's Jason Hunt. Shout out to you, Jason. Herb Bryant in Florida. Shout out to you, Herb. Great member of this community. Nazgul from Morador, My Pillow Guy Basement. My Pillow. Right? What's he up to these days? Jeff in Lindsay, Canada. Boulder, Alex Gunn in Boulder. Dan Keating out there in New Jersey. Shout out to you, Dan. Shout out to you. Jeff in Detroit, Michigan is with us. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Steve in Southwest Michigan. Uh, St. Louis. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, anybody else? Names and locations? All righty. Okay, folks. I'm going to start answering your super chat questions. Keep them rolling in because that's what makes the second half of the show fun. 
Polls in Russia show the people favor socialism. Well, um, I mean, there's a there's a couple factors there, okay? So first of all, the Soviet Union is viewed very positively among the population. Soviet nostalgia is very high. Many people say that life was better in, at the time of the Soviet Union. Uh, the 1990s, the fall of the Soviet Union was a disaster. Uh, it's, it's a pivotal moment in many Russian people's lives. Um, uh, meanwhile, uh, there's great national pride in defeating the Nazis. Furthermore, the pandemic uh, has exacerbated uh, the gap between the rich and poor, not just in Russia, but all throughout the world. I mean, Russian President Vladimir Putin condemned capitalism in a, in a recent speech, and he talked about how the pandemic has revealed that the model of capitalism that works in the West, that, that has been developed in the West, is not working, and the pandemic has laid it out, you know, and that's the Russian president talked about that. Now, you have a very strong communist party in Russia. That's the second largest political party in the country after United Russia, and there are a number of other socialist parties in the Russian parliament uh, that have representation. Um, you know, and I would say that, you know, United Russia is not it's not a Marxist or a communist party, but it's not a free market libertarian party either. They're a party that is, you know, it's more of a nationalist orientation. They want to do what's best for Russia. And if that means government control or if that means foreign investment, um, you know, that's my right, professional managerial class. Uh, that That's what they're open to. Um, so there you go. There you go. Um, so, you know, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. Look, and in Russia, you know, there is still a lot of government programs. Uh, the government, uh, you know, the government directs a lot of the economy. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's mainly the sale of oil and natural gas that subsidizes the state, and the state uses that to subsidize a lot of industries. Um, and uh, there's a lot of industry in Russia that is technically private but directed by the state. Um, you, you can't call Russia a free market society by any means. Um, it's not socialist in the way the Soviet Union was, certainly. Uh, and there's a lot of free enterprise in Russia, um, but it's not a libertarian country by any means. I mean, the government, you know, the government controls the oil and natural gas. The government directs a lot of the industries. Um, you know, Russia is very much a mixed economy. Uh, it's actually, they studied Deng Xiaoping theory um, when they were, you know, you know, reforming the Russian economy, uh, you know, in, in the early parts of the 21st century. So... There, there you go. And the fact that the, the public in Russia at this point favors socialism, I would assume based on what I saw in Russia during the last presidential election, what that means is they mean they need they, they argue for more of a social safety net uh, because that's what Grudinin, who was the candidate of the Communist Party, Pavel Grudinin, that's what he emphasized in his campaign was we need more uh, subsidies for education. We need more subsidies for healthcare. Uh, you know, we need uh, we need to provide more of a pension for older folks. And I think when when you say these polls in Russia favor socialism, what that means is they probably say that in addition to um, you know in addition to the way things are, they want more of a social safety net uh, to exist. And um, and that's a debate they're going to have in Russia, right? And I respect the right of the Russian people to determine their own future. Um, you know, and the Communist Party has had some significant gains in recent elections. Um, and there's been some debate, um, and there's been some shifts, and uh, you know we'll we'll see what happens. But ultimately, the USA doesn't want to destroy Russia because it's it's you know it's got a strong communist party. The United States wants to destroy Russia because it's a competitor, right? They're furious right now with the fact that Russia is able to have so much influence over the price of oil and gas. That, that drives them crazy. They're blatantly complaining about this. The fact that that Russia uh, and their natural gas and oil you know supplies has such an impact on the price. 
They can't stand it. They want to have the impact on the price. They want to be able to rig the oil prices. They want to be able to rig the natural gas prices. And the fact that Russia can say no, the fact that Biden has to negotiate and the, the, the European Union countries have to negotiate with Russia about how much natural gas is put onto the market, they don't like that. They don't like it when other countries have influence. And that's the issue. That's the issue. Favorite color. Uh, you know, I usually say red, but that's a little bit stereotypically communist. Um, there are some greens that I really like. Um, there's some blues that I appreciate. You know, there's a shade of every color that is good, and there's a shade of every color that is bad, you know? And that, that applies to everything in the universe. Everything can become its opposite. You know, I like red, but there are some shades of red that I don't like. Um, there are some, I like blue, but there are some shades of blue that I don't like. Uh, I like green, but there are some shades of green that I don't like, right? And that, um, that, Everything has the ability to be its opposite. You know, uh, there can be a green that's still a green, but it's, it is it is far less appealing to my eyes than another green, but they're both still green. Um, so, you know, it's something to think about, right? Everything can become its opposite. There you go. Um, there you go. All right. Um, Saif Gaddafi banned from the Libyan elections. Well, that's an outrage. It's an absolute outrage. And it sounds like they wouldn't have banned him if they didn't think he could win. Um, you have to remember Saif Gaddafi. That was Gaddafi's oldest son. And he was somewhat of the, the moderate um, and the pro-Western voice uh, in the Libyan government uh, when Gaddafi was in power. Um, he was known to advocate uh, more market reforms. Uh, he was known to uh, meet with oppositionists. And you know, he was considered largely to be uh, one of the more pro-Western figures within Gaddafi's government. Um, that said, now that, you know, the USA toppled the Libyan government and the country's been in chaos, now he's associated with anti-imperialism, which is interesting. Um, and I think he's aligned with Haftar, uh, the general who betrayed Gaddafi, but is now, you know, kind of a figure. Um, so, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. Libya, look at Libya right now. Right? How can anybody say that U.S. regime change operations benefit people? You know, Joe Biden is having this whole, whole conference about democracy, this democracy summit. If you want to refute that whole conference, you just have to shout, Libya! I, I mean, I wish somebody could, you know, I mean, it's going to be online. So it's not even going to be on, in person, the conference. But somebody, somebody just wanted to say this conference is bullshit. They should shout, Libya! Right? Look how well the democratization of Libya has gone or Iraq, or Syria, or Eastern Europe after the fall of the Soviet Union. Name one single place they've made better with their interventions. Name one place that got better because the USA overthrew the government with a color revolution, with an invasion, with a NATO bombing campaign. Name one single place that got better. In Afghanistan, they had 20 years, 20 years of occupation. Things didn't get better. So, I mean, the next time they come along and they're telling you some heart-wrenching story about, you know, the government in China or the government in Russia or the government in Venezuela is doing this, you know, just tell them to blow it out their ass, you know, because, I mean, we've heard it so many times, not one single place, not one single place has gotten better from a U.S. military intervention. Not one, not one single place has been improved since the United States overthrew their government invaded, toppled their government and, and, and installed, I mean, not, not one, there is not one, one single place that has benefited from a U.S. regime change operation. 
Um, you know, you can say World War II, but those countries were all Western capitalist developed countries before World War II. It wasn't, the USA didn't invade and topple their governments. It, you know, it liberated them from the Nazis with the alliance with the Soviet Union. So that doesn't count, right? Um, someone in the chat said South Korea. Well, the South Korean government already existed. In the USA, it was just, there was a, there was a, a war to reunify the Korean Peninsula and then it didn't get reunified, right? Um, so... Neither of those, no. I mean, there's not one example, not one example of a U.S. military overthrow or regime change operation that has improved people's lives. <coughs> not one. All right. Um, coastal gas link pipeline in Canada protests. Well, what that's about at the end of the day is fracking. Um, and it, it shows that they're trying to build fracking infrastructure. You know, there was the situation with Standing Rock um, and there's opposition to it. There's environmental groups, there's indigenous groups, um, and then there's the fracking companies. And, you know, there's also probably a conflict between big oil and little oil. And the fracking companies are much more right-wing um, and the big oil companies are in with the liberals. And, you know, this is this is playing out, but it's also a situation where the reason the United States desperately wants there to be more oil and the reason that, that they want more oil in Canada, the reason that they've pushed fracking so hard is they, again, they don't like the fact that countries like Russia and Venezuela and Iran have influence in the international oil markets. And so they want to escalate uh, the, you know, the oil production domestically in the United States and Canada as much as they possibly can. And so that's why they hate the frackers, but they love the frackers. On the one hand, um, you know, they need the frackers. On the other hand, they hate the frackers, right? Uh, the frackers are competing with the super major oil companies, but with the frackers, uh, that gives the USA more influence over the oil markets. So there you go. Uh, somebody stepped up and volunteered uh, to make my speech, you know, to edit my speech, Oil in the Global Capitalist Crisis for me and to edit out the um, the, trans the Portuguese translation. So it's just all the way through in English. So I'm going to post that later. Um, so there you go. All right. Zio Mara Castro victory in Honduras. It's amazing. It's huge. Um, you know, uh, Honduras had a socialist leader in 2009, Manuel Zelaya, who was toppled in a coup. Um, and then ever since then, they've had free market regimes. But now the anti-imperialist sentiments and the, the hunger and the anger on the part of the population was so massive. And the United States has alienated the Honduran deep state so much. And China, you know, the, you know, China wants to invest in Honduras. And, and there was just an alignment of forces that made it impossible for them to steal the election. Uh, you know, the people of Honduras are hungry and angry and fighting for their rights and mobilizing and fighting for socialism. Uh, the United States has alienated elements in the Honduran deep state. Uh, number one. And so the Honduran, a lot of the Honduran state was so alienated by the Trump administration and then so alienated by Kamala Harris and the way she conducted herself there that a lot of the Honduran government uh, is not, um, you know, is not as willing to cooperate with the United States anymore. On top of that, China is willing to invest in Honduras, right? China is a big financial power. Some say China is now the largest economy on earth. So at the end of the day, it just, you know, you know, having you know, rigging the elections against the Omar Castro is something that, that, you know, that there was an alignment of forces that enabled this to happen. And this, this opens up the road to 
actually stopping the refugee crisis on the border by, you know, bringing schools and hospitals and education and infrastructure and electricity and running water to those folks in Honduras. There are people in Honduras who don't have running water and electricity. There are a lot of people in Honduras who don't speak Spanish. They still speak indigenous languages. They're desperately... Socialism is the cure for this. If you compare Nicaragua to Honduras, compare Nicaragua to Guatemala. I mean, socialism clearly works better. Um, and now, if Xiomara Castro can get in there, and if she can actually go full speed and actually change the economy, put in a new constitution like her husband tried to do in 2009 before he was overthrown, um, you know, if she can actually get in there, put a new constitution in, start changing the military, start moving towards socialism, uh, things could really improve for the people of Honduras. Um, and that would be a fix to the refugee crisis. All these all these, these right-wingers want to build a big giant wall. Well, that's not going to solve it. That's not going to solve it. So there you go. All right. Is Russia going to invade Ukraine? No, no, Russia's not going to invade Ukraine. The United States is escalating and threatening Russia in Ukraine. The United States is threatening to send its military to Russia's Ukraine border. Um, you know, uh, the the Ukrainian government is killing civilians and, and its own population with drone strikes, you know, Turkish-made drones. And so, you know, Russia, you know, maybe there may escalate a situation where Russia has to respond. But Russia is not plotting the invasion of Ukraine. Russian officials have made that abundantly clear. I don't represent Russia or anything like that. I'm a guy on YouTube. But, you know, I, I mean, Russian officials have made it very clear they're not interested in invading Ukraine. You know, and again, what should we be more worried about? Russia and China or the disaster that capitalism is creating in the United States right now? All right. All right. Um, uh, do you know any Marxist writers who provide analysis of the Chinese Communist Party over the last 30 and 40 years? Yes. <coughs> yes, I do. Um, one of those writers is, um, is, um, is the guy who wrote When China Rules the World, uh, Martin Jakes, and he wrote a very good analysis of modern China. Um, another one of those writers, um, I actually have his book. I can't remember. I just read a lot of it. It's about the Chinese Communist Party. It's very good. Um, I can't remember his name. Uh, I think like, uh, but it's very, very good. Um, I can also, you know, Harpal Brar has written a book called Socialism with Chinese Characteristics, uh, given his perspective on socialism in China and his feelings uh, and his analysis of socialism with Chinese characteristics. Um there's a lot that's been published. Uh, there's a book called The Rise of a Civilization State. What is it? Um, the China Wave, Rise of a Civilization State. It was a bestseller in China, promoted widely by the Chinese Communist Party. That has great analysis. And it talks about, you know, Deng Xiaoping and how he went to Eastern Europe and how their socialism developed in a way that, you know, Martin, uh, the socialism in Eastern Europe could not. Uh, that's very good. Um, you know, um, so there, there you go. The China Wave by Martin Jakes. Um, yeah, uh, that's that's pretty good. Or the China wave, um, you know, the rise of a civilization state is very good. Um, I would recommend um, I would recommend Martin Jakes when China rules the world. Um, and um, yeah, there you go. And I would recommend also read the Chinese Communist Party's ideological publication, Kuei I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation, but they publish a quarterly magazine that has ideological Marxist documents in it, which you can read. 
Um, and I've got, you know, a number of issues of it. And just read their documents on Confucianism, on socialism, et cetera. Um, so there you go. I mean, you know, read what they have to say about it. Read what they have to say about it. All right, the Irish Rebellion of 1916, the Easter Rising, uh, the the post office, the GPO, right? When when James Connolly seized the the general post office, um, the Easter Rising, um, and it was very much a socialist uprising in Ireland in 1916 during World War One. Um, James Connolly uh, broke. He was a member of the Wobblies. He'd been in the IWW in the United States, but he disagreed with them. On the national question, uh, he said that the Irish people had the right to fight for their national liberation and that the struggle of the workers and the struggle of nations for independence walked hand in hand. The IWW, the anarchists, had said that there is no nations. And he said, no, the Irish people are fighting for their nation. Um, and, you know, James Connolly wrote, it was, he, was a, he was a Leninist in a lot of ways. I mean, he didn't read Lenin. Lenin never met him and vice versa. But James Connolly, uh, you know, his understanding of the Irish national question and the, the working class struggle and how he combined socialism with national liberation. Oh my God, James Connolly must be a Nazbol, right? But he combined the struggle of national liberation on the part of the Irish people with the struggle to defeat the global system of imperialism and monopoly capitalism. Uh, you know, he said, what is it? An English boss is a monster, but an Irish one is worse. Um, you know, um, James Connolly, yeah, I mean, he wrote, we only want the earth, but our demands most modest are, we only want the earth. Uh, you know, James Connolly was a, a Marxist. Uh, he was definitely a Marxist. And um, yeah, I mean, he was killed um, and uh, he spent a lot of time in the United States, went back to Ireland. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Books on liberation theology. Look, okay, so you have to be specific. Now, when you talk about liberation theology, you're specifically referring to a Roman Catholic um, current that was sympathetic to Marxism, right, in Latin America, mainly in Latin America. It was in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. You had the development of, you know, priests. I believe it was Oscar Romero uh, was one priest. There was a number of priests throughout South and Central America who became sympathetic to Marxism. Uh, in the 1980s, there were some priests who served in the Sandinista government of Nicaragua. And liberation theology, the term liberation theology refers specifically to a Roman Catholic movement. And, um, you know, there's a good speech about it uh, that was given by, uh, um, what's his name? Oh, goodness gracious, his name is escaping me. There's a very good speech about the question of liberation theology uh, that was given by um, um, Herbert Apfecker. Right. Herbert Apthecker was invited to UCLA, uh, the University of California, Los Angeles. And you can find on YouTube the recording of Herbert Apthecker, uh, who was a member of the Communist Party USA, was one of the most famous uh, African-American historians. Um, and he gave a, a lecture on the relationship between the Catholic Church and communism in Latin America and the need to reconcile and the, you know, the kind of the Catholic Church's relationship with Marxism. A very good talk. Uh, that Herbert Apothecker gave. Um, and there are a number of books that have been written, um, you know, um, I believe there was even a novel published in the 1930s uh, called Bread and Wine. Uh, it's called Bread and Wine. It was about a priest who becomes a, a socialist or something. But but when people, a lot of times when people say liberation theology, they're meaning all Christian socialism. And that's that's not correct. There, um, In fact, I would say, you know, you know, first of all, 
anti-capitalism from a Christian perspective predates capitalism. I mean, you know, the Catholic Church was condemning capitalism as it was beginning. Um, you know, I mean, there's a reason money was called filthy lucre, right? They say money is sterile, it's barren metal, et cetera, you know. Uh, but, you know, that was not socialism. That was what you could call conservative anti-capitalism. Um, you know, it was, uh, but then, you know, you had at the time, you know, you had the diggers, for example, there was a group of Protestants, uh, during the English civil war called the diggers uh, and the diggers, um, they very much believed, um, in, uh, you know, you know, the idea that, that property was a sin. Um, and they seized St. George's Hill in the year of 1649. They were the, the diggers or the true levelers. Uh, and they, you know, they had a socialist, peasant commune, uh, you know, in, in England, uh, in St. George's Hill. Um, and, um, I mean, there were, there were Christian socialist movements, all, Robert Owen. Uh, now Robert Owen was, he was critical of mainstream Christianity, but he had some spiritual beliefs. Uh, Henry St. Simon, uh, it's the guy who coined the term socialism was a French thinker and he had a very religious perspective. You know, Eugene Debs was a Christian. And uh, Eugene Debs was very religious and he wrote a beautiful essay, Jesus, the Supreme Leader, that we republished in our Jesus is a Socialist book. Um, Christian socialism is a very broad topic. Probably the most important Marxist text on Christianity is called The Foundations of Christianity by Karl Kautsky. And it's a history of ancient Rome. It's a history of the Christian church. And it's a history of... Um, of Judaism and and you know the the Jewish people in Palestine at the time of of Christ, um, and it it is a Marxist historical materialist interpretation of the Christian religion. It's called the Foundations of Christianity. So if you want a Marxist analysis of Christianity, the book that I would recommend the most is Karl Kautsky's Foundations of Christianity. But liberation theology is a very specific topic. So you're talking about a very specific movement. <sighs> Sorry, I'm I'm just uh, <clears throat> my voice is starting to give out here. That's okay. Um, but anyway, all right. Is there a section of the ruling class that wants nuclear war to stop progress? I wouldn't go that far. There's definitely a section of the ruling class, a very big section, a very powerful section that's Malthusian. There's a very powerful section that is determined to stop the growth of Russia and China by all costs. I haven't seen evidence that they full-on want a nuclear war. I think that they will consider it. They're open to it. Uh, they don't have the fear of it that that all of us have. But I, I've never, I, I don't know for a fact that there's people that want a nuclear war and are trying to get one. Okay. Um, federal debt, who do we owe? Well, that's the thing. When you pay your taxes, um, when you pay your taxes, you're not literally paying for schools and hospitals. You're paying debt to banks because the government has borrowed from the banks to pay for the schools and hospitals, et cetera. And that's that's this game where lending money to the government is, is this money-making ripoff scheme that the banks have gotten into. And whenever we have a budget crisis, uh, one thing that the government could do is stop bank payments. Now, they could just tell the banks, nope, nope. And... The, the government could also, if they wanted to, and then they say, well, the banks, then they're going to you know, set our credit rating and we're going to have to pay more interest. No, the government can say no. The government lends the money. The government is the government, right? The government could set its own credit rating. The government could say, all right, you know, if you, if you lend money to the government, um, you know, we pay it back at this interest rate. 
And, you know, I mean, the government should set its own credit rating. The government should determine at what rate, um, you know, the banks are paid back. The way the, the way the government borrows money is a great example of a ripoff scheme where the government is constantly in debt to banks. The government pays back loans to bankers at interest. And if you really, if there was a budget crisis, just freeze the payments to the banks. Just freeze the payments to the banks. Tell the banks they got to wait. Lower the interest that the banks get, right? That, that would that would cause huge amounts of increase in the public budget if we weren't paying as much interest. But the banks have got the government into this ripoff scheme, and it's it's really unbelievable. And, you know, I mean, for every dollar we print, we get in deeper debt. I mean, it's, it's all ridiculous. We have a banker's government. And that's why it infuriates me that these bread tube hacks uh, they say that uh, that we can't um, that we can't talk about bankers. They say that's anti-Semitic. Well, no, it's not anti-Semitic. Most bankers, most elite banking families in the United States are not Jewish. And if you say we're not allowed to talk about bankers, we're we're not allowed to criticize capitalism. And that's what they're trying to tell us. I'm, every day they come out with a new stupid rule that we all have to follow. They might as well just say you're not allowed to be a communist. You're not allowed to be a communist. You're not allowed to be support this regime. You're not allowed to work with people that oppose gay marriage, even though around the world, a lot of anti-capitalists and anti-imperialists oppose gay marriage. Oh, no, you can't work with people that are opposed to abortion, even though that's all Muslims, basically. So you can't work with the Muslim community. I mean, it's, you know, they come out with a new stupid rule every day, a new stupid rule. Um, and I, we got to not follow these rules. And the second you, the, the problem is a lot of people think, well, I can play ball with these people. I'll follow some of their rules. No, you can't. You just have to tell these people to shove it. All right. Because the second you start kowtowing to them, you lose. Decide what your principles are, what you believe is right, what you believe is wrong. Pick the hill you want to die on and stick to it. You cannot, you know, you know, if they say to you, oh, banker is anti-Semitic, you have to say, no, it's not. No, it's not. I'm not talking about any race. I'm not talking about any religion. I'm talking about financial institutions that lend money and, you know, and and leave it at that, right? If, if they say to you, oh, you can't work with people uh, who are opposed to gay marriage, you say, no, I am going to work with Muslims to protest for Palestine, to protest for civil liberties, to protest against wars, uh, to protest against police brutality and economic justice. And if someone comes to my demonstration and they're a Muslim, uh, who is opposed to police brutality, and they oppose abortion and gay marriage because it goes against Islam, they're welcome. And the same goes for an Orthodox Jew. The same goes for an evangelical Christian. Um, you know, these people, you know, you you cannot play ball with these people. You cannot play ball with these people. The second you give them an inch, you give them a mile, right? And you just have to, if one of these people shows up and they want to play this game, just tell them to shove it because no. And don't compromise your principles. And that's the dangerous thing, right? Decide what your principles are, right? If you are against against bigotry, be clear about it. I'm for gay marriage. I'm for gay marriage. I'm for the right of a woman to have an abortion. I'm for I'm for the right of a woman to have an abortion. I'm a I'm in favor of gay marriage. I'm opposed to anti-Semitism. I don't think anyone should be hated on the basis of their ethnicity or their religion. Um, you know, I don't, I don't buy, I think that the idea that there's a, some secret Jewish conspiracy controlling the world is a, is wrong. And it's a problematic belief, um, that has led to horrendous events like the Holocaust. I have my principles. Okay. I have my principles, but I am not going to adopt the principles of the synthetic left. I'm for gay marriage, but I'll work with people who aren't. I'm for abortion, 
but I'll work with people who aren't. Uh, I reject all forms of bigotry, all anti-Semitism, but if there's working people that are confused about that, I'm not gonna spit on them and tell them they're bad people. I'm going to engage with them and try to win them away from that perspective, right? And um, the same goes for other issues, right? That you have to decide what your principles are. You have to decide what your principles are and don't let the synthetic left decide it for you. Because basically, at the end of the day, the only people the synthetic left want you to work with is Joe Biden, right? And that's what they're trying to do. And all their cancel culture never applies to Joe Biden. You know, they all lined up, ContraPoints, Vosh, all of them said to vote for Joe Biden, right? You know, oh, oh, you know, you can't work with anyone who's opposed to gay marriage. Oh, oh, you can't say banker, that's a secret. But Joe Biden can, you know, talk about super predators and he can do all kinds of stuff. And that's okay because he's Joe Biden. That's who they work for. Right, they're they're they are pro-imperialist hacks, and don't play ball with them. The second you play ball with them, they win. How do we advocate for communism and modern monetary theory? MMT. Um, you know, uh, you know. Okay, you know, modern monetary theory is like the idea that the government could print money and give it to people. Right? You know, instead of you know you know the government could pump money into the economy and give it to people, and it's interesting. It's a, certainly an interesting theory. I'm not like straight up opposed to it, but I don't think it's going to solve the problem. The problem is ultimately capitalism. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting to, to think that, you know, you know, with the government printing money, it doesn't just have to just give it to banks, right? I mean, I mean, the way the Federal Reserve printing money operates, you know, it's interesting. <clears throat> Books exposing anti-communism. Well, one good book, Exposing anti-communism. Um, what's this? Uh, reminded when you criticize the military-industrial complex. Okay, whatever. Yeah, people call me all kinds of things. Um, um, right. Um, <clears throat> books exposing anti-communism. Um, Black Shirts and Reds by Michael Parenti is very good. Um, you know, talks about how the fall of the Soviet Union was a disaster. Talks about the roots of fascism and, and fascism being rooted in capitalism. That's a very good book by Michael Parenti. Black Shirts and Reds. Um, uh, what other books exposing anti-communism? The Stalin Era by Anna Louise Strong is a great, it is an explanation of what life was like under Stalin's leadership from the perspective of an American journalist who was living in the Soviet Union at that time. Very, very important book, The Stalin Era. And that, you know, that will give you an insight into, into, you know, the anti-Stalin, you know, narrative that we get, the anti-Soviet narrative that'll give you another perspective. Um, what other books exposing anti-communist lies are good? Um, um, oh, goodness. Um, you know, that's the thing. I try to write in a very to-the-point way. I, I, I try to, you know, but there's a lot of like academic studies of socialist countries, et cetera, they give you another perspective, but they don't just straight up answer the lies. And that's what we need to develop at the Center for Political Innovation. It's just some like straight up to the point literature. I'm all for that. All right. Best books on Marxist philosophy. Um, okay. So, uh, well, where to begin? Um, you know, um, where to begin? Um you know, there was a great pamphlet uh, that was written, and I wish I, I wish it was online somewhere. Uh, but there was a great pamphlet written by Hillel Cohen, uh, who was a, a leader of the Workers' World Party, 
Um, and he wrote a great document called Reason and Change. And I don't think it's online anywhere. It might be. And if it's online, it would be great because uh, it's a great ex explanation of dialectical materialism. Um, and the leaders of the Workers' World Party tried to suppress it uh, because he wasn't part of the clique. Uh, but it was published by the Workers' World Party in the 1980s, the early 1980s. And you can probably find it online. There's a PDF of it online somewhere. Reason and Change by Hillel Cohen is very good. Um, uh, but what else? What other writings on historical and dialectical materialism are there um, that it would be good? I mean, it comes in anything that it's from a Marxist perspective is going to talk about that stuff. I mean, I like the textbooks, like the Fundamentals of Marxism-Leninism, which is an old Soviet textbook. The first you know, chapter is all about dialectical materialism. Um, in the history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, there's a chapter on dialectical materialism that was written by Stalin. And actually, if you read Stalin's book, Marxism or Anarchism, the first section is all about dialectical materialism. Um, you know, I'm trying to think what other what other books. Um, I mean, there's there's a very good book published by international publishers called Dialectical Materialism. It's very very good. Um, Caleb, what what you well-meaning intellectuals don't understand is the majority of the conversation has to be emotional and cultural. Historiography is beneficial to us, but it's meaningless in the face of mythological ideology. Patrick, I I don't know what you mean. Um, I am I am very emotional, and I, I you know I let me just say, Patrick, I'll just react to that now before I move on to the next one. You know, one of my critiques of Marxism is Marxist groups. There is this lack of emotion, and I I'll, honestly I think that that comes from it comes from the bourgeois revolution. Because at the time of the bourgeois revolution, science, um, <clears throat> you know, scientific thinking was the bold new way of doing things, right? Um, you know, during the Protestant Reformation, they took music out of churches. They took uh, stained glass windows out of churches because they wanted to just believe the Bible, right? Ulrich Zwingli, the leader of the Swiss Reformed Church, was all about, and, it, you know, if you look at the way, um, you know, the way a lot of the bourgeois revolutionaries operated, right? Um, there was this desire to reject emotions, to reject passion, uh, and to be scientific. Uh, and it made, there was a logic to it because feudalism had depended on this kind of emotional loyalty to, you know, to, to spiritual forces and man's quote unquote natural superiors. And so the bourgeois revolutionaries, um, in many cases, especially the Protestants, made a big point of trying to not be emotional, right? I mean, you know, you talk about, um, you know, Oliver Cromwell didn't believe in Christmas dinner, right? He thought Christmas dinner was sinful. You should spend Christmas thinking about God, not eating a big meal. And that, that a big part of the bourgeois revolution against feudalism was trying to replace the, the, um, the, the you know, the passionate emotional rituals of feudalism with scientific uh, reason. I don't know if you know this, but uh, this is pretty wild. But, you know, the death penalty, for example, in feudalism, the death penalty is carried out in this very emotional way. You know, you have a ceremony and they're like, you know, they're cutting someone's head off, they're playing the drum, you know, and it's this big elaborate killing ritual. You know, in the Soviet Union, when they executed people, they just shot them. Um, and in some cases, they made a point of not having the person know they were going to die. They talked about the long walk where the person, you know, they take the person out of their cell, they think they're going somewhere and then they, they pull their gun out and just shoot him in the back of the head. Um, you know, so the person doesn't even see it coming. It's just, you know, that kills them, right? And the idea was that, um, you know, that, that you were taking 
taking the emotion, uh, you know, the guillotine, for example. In the French Revolution, they invented the guillotine. Now, we think of the guillotine as being this awful killing device, but the reason the guillotine was invented was because it would be less painful and it would be this less, it would be less of this elaborate ritual. You know, it's not this elaborate killing ritual where we're cutting you in four pieces and reading a pro. It was just kind of bring them up there, off their head, next. You know, I mean, it was just kind of, there was this feeling that what was wrong with feudalism was that it was overly emotional and overly spiritual. And it was better to replace um, to replace uh, feudalism with science. And the more cold you can be, the more rational you can be, it'll make things healthy. Um, and uh, the Victorian mindset is a lot like that, right? And that's in Victorian times, they were all about suppress your emotions, suppress your sexual desires, you know, the stiff upper lip attitude, it was very much about controlling passion. And because communist governments, you know, in Russia and in China, um, they, they overthrew feudalism. Russia was largely, I mean, it was semi-feudal. There was some capitalism in Russia. It was largely feudal at the time. They wanted to be scientific. And in China, you know, they overthrew feudalism. They wanted to be scientific. I just need to qualify. Well-meaning intellectual is not an insult. I, I understand, Patrick. But so... You know, and I've noticed this as I've traveled around the world. One thing about communists, and, and it's it, usually I like communists around the world better than I like communists in the United States. But one thing I will say about communists around the world is if you ever go around the world, you know, to any like official communist party, like official, you know, bona fide communist party, not, you know, the progressive revolutionary socialist party, not the Sandinistas. No, if you go to the, the event of the official communist party, the politics often is pretty good. They're consistently anti-imperialist and all that, but you will be bored as shit, right? It's like going to like an Anglican church service or something. It's like, it's it's a lot of very dull, I am getting up and reading the speech on behalf of the third committee of the, you know, you don't get passionate oratory. Uh, you don't get music. You don't get, you know, because there is this desire, this feeling, well, we don't want to be corrupted by the passions. They associate passion um, you know, heavy speeches and they associate that. They associate passion and strong emotions uh, with with feudalism, and they're trying to be scientific. But honestly, I think that needs to be rediscussed. Um, I used to joke, you know, that um, one of the worst things about communist meetings is that you know, in the United States, even still, like I, you go to a communist event, it's just speech after speech after speech, and often the speeches are written out. For God's sakes, the speeches are not performed. They're written out. It's person after person getting up and reading from a piece of paper. And it's infuriating, right? You cannot have a public meeting without music. I mean, sometimes you have no choice, right? I mean, we had a conference in California and the, the musician just couldn't come the first day. He came the next day and it helped, but he couldn't be there the first day. But, you know, we had our event in Pennsylvania and there was a, a there we made sure, we 100% made sure to have a musician there. You can't have a public meeting without music. And the speeches have to be delivered. You can have notes in front of you, fine, but you can't read your speech, right? I mean, you can read maybe a statement or a letter from somebody or something, but if someone's giving a long talk, if someone's speaking for more than 15 minutes, they have to, have to, have to, have to, it has to be lively. They have, they have to be looking at the audience. They have to be interacting with the audience. Um, you know, You know, I mean, think about, you know, you know, think about, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with you to some degree, Leslie. Um, is that what the person's name was Leslie, Patrick Leslie, or 
Yeah, Patrick Leslie, I'm with you. I'm with you on that, right? And that emotions, passion, these things are very important. And that there has been a neglect of these things. You know, there's a kind of um, there's a kind of dull dullness that a lot of communists have, and, and it needs to be overcome. There needs to be music, there needs to be passionate speeches, etc. All right. Um, is revolutionary violence inevitable? Well, I mean, who's to say what's inevitable? Okay. The main thing is that we do not advocate violence, and that's very important. We want a peaceful transition to socialism. The ruling class will decide whether or not violence is inevitable, because if they do not allow the democratic process to go forward, and they attack the people, and they violently suppress them, and they move toward fascism to prevent the people from mobilizing to build socialism— Uh, The people will have to defend themselves, but that is up to the ruling class. That is up to the ruling class. It's not up to us. And it's important that we don't fall into the trap. This is a a trick that social Democrats like to use. It's a trick that police provocateurs like to use. They want to trick you into saying you advocate violence so they can arrest you, so they can accuse you of being an extremist. They can link you to violent acts that happen and don't fall for it. Don't get backed into that corner. We want peace. We want a peaceful democratic transition to socialism. And if the ruling class doesn't allow it, that's their decision. And don't let them trick you. This is the common trick that is used to discredit communists by liberals, by police provocateurs, by fascists. Don't fall for it. Stick, stick to your point, which is we want a peaceful transition to socialism. We advocate a peaceful transition to socialism. We want you know, to get socialists elected. We want to ratify a new socialist constitution. We want to make the country better with socialism. We don't advocate violence. We don't advocate civil war. We love this country. We love average Americans and socialism will make their life better. If you can't say that, you're not a communist, okay? I, I, all of this, you know, burn it down, tear it down. You're a Euro settler, civil, that is not Marxism. That is pessimism. That is destructive. And it's toxic. If you're a Marxist, you love your country, you love your community, and the way to make your country better is with socialism. You don't want a civil war. You want you want a peaceful transition to a rational socialist society. You want a new state to emerge, a socialist state. You do want to dissolve the Pentagon. You do want to get rid of the CIA. You do want to get rid of the FBI and the policing agencies. You do want to set up a new state. We should be clear about that. It's not simply a matter of changing elected officials. We want a whole new state a whole new society. We want the whole country to be reborn, but, but we do not, we do not want violence. We have to be very clear about that, and don't let them trick you into saying you want violence, because that's a way to way to way to uh, to discredit you. That's a trap. It's a trap. All right, professional managerial class. Um, I mean. <coughs> Look, okay, so there's a book called The Managerial Revolution. There was a Trotskyite named James James Burnham. He was a Trotskyite uh, who became one of the third camp Trotskyites, broke with Trotsky. He had a theory that there was a new class that had emerged um, that was neither capitalists nor workers. Uh, they were managers. And this managerial class, that's who ruled the USSR. That's who ruled Nazi Germany. It was neither capitalist nor socialist. Um And that was a big theory in the 1930s. There was a theory that there was this new class emerging called the managerial class. They were neither capitalists nor workers. They were this third class and that they had had taken power. It's very easy to debunk. 
uh, you know, the corporations that these professional managerials work for all function to make profits for shareholders. All those shareholders have the power to fire all those professional managerials. Um, you know, I mean, it's still capitalism, it's still private ownership of the means of production. Um, but there is a group of people who are paid to manage capitalism, and that exists, right? Um, there's people whose job it is to manage um, capitalism. What super chat did I miss? What super chat did I miss? All right. Um, you know, and that's the professional managerial. Uh, Well-meaning intellectual is not an insult. I saw that, Patrick. I saw that. I don't think I missed that, that super chat. Um, you know, and but professional managerials, at the end of the day, they're functionaries in capitalism, right? You hire a manager to run your company. You uh, professionals, right? Lawyers. And in some cases, lawyers, doctors are proletarians, right? You know, if you work at a big hospital, you work at a big law firm, uh, you know, you're being exploited for your labor. Now, if you have your own practice, you're petty bourgeois because you have your own practice. But, you know, I mean, a lot of doctors are proletarians. A lot of uh, a lot of lawyers are proletarians. Now, obviously, they, they have a skill and they're very high paid because they're in demand. But at the end of the day, and technically, okay, they could have their own practice. Um, you know, they could have their own practice if they wanted it, um, but um, but there you go. All right, folks, um, my voice is given out and it's late, but I think we'll probably do this again tomorrow night, if I'm not mistaken. Um, if I, I think I'll be able to do this tomorrow night. So um, we'll do this again tomorrow night. So uh, my best wishes to everybody. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression, but the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. And while the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night.